to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir. Mademoiselle, monsieur. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo en Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Senor, senorita, what's happening? Oh, man. Namaste. Konnichiwa. Woo, shalom, wassalam alaikum, all the good spirits, all the good vibe, all the good energy coming to each and every one of you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, here And what is still a little bit of snow left. There's remnants of snow on the rooftops and on the ground and out here in Nevada. It actually snowed. In Las Vegas, Nevada, it actually snowed for it being Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, if you're living in Norway, if you're living in Chicago, if you're living in the East Coast of the United States, if you're living anywhere in that area, in that region where you actually get snow, you could probably laugh at the fact that what came down yesterday would be considered real snow. But for being Las Vegas, heck yeah, man, the snow. And after day after day after day of living in the desert where every single day from the spring to the summer to the fall and now a little bit into the winter every single flipping day. Sunny and hot, 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 sunny and hot every single day. So it's so nice, man. It's getting to the point where, you know what, I'll take a cloudy day. For me, a cloudy day is a day for me to, you know, celebrate and run outside and like, wow, clouds, no sun. So, yes, um, it was very nice, the fact that it was uh, snowing. Don't even have to run up the Mount Charleston to actually see some snow so i'm in a good mood mood sending good vibe to everybody out there i hope everybody's doing what they need to do to uh make this place a better place to be listening learning educating yourself listening to folks who don't look like you who might come from a different background than you someone who might have a different gender than you someone has a different skin tone than you someone with a different political affiliation than you hope that you're listening learning growing and doing all of those things Woo, man a lot of things to get down on and discussed discussed today in the world of sports the super bowl is set we got the Kansas City defending champions against the Tampa Tom Brady Buccaneers. We'll go over those two games. We'll also take a look at uh, the Super Bowl in itself. Look, I'm not going to do the the Super Bowls in two weeks, which is surprising to me. I thought because of the COVID and everything that they want to just hurry up and get the thing done and get it out of the way. So I thought it was going to be one week, but it's going to be two weeks. All right. Normally, it's, you get everything together and the players need to take care of their responsibilities and their obligations to get family and friends and tickets and all of those things situated. So the first week normally is just concentrating on that, healing up old uh, injuries, you know, some nicks and some pains and those type of things. But uh, I thought, as I mentioned before, because of the pandemic, that they would kind of cut that in half so they could just hurry up, get the season over with, call it a success and move on to uh, future dealings. But uh, they're going to wait two weeks. All right. So, I'm not going to go two weeks and, you know, talk about every single nook and cranny of this game, but uh, I will discuss 
in this podcast a little bit later on, you know, Kansas City, what they need to do, Tampa, what they need to do. And of course, on the podcast, I'll be going over the AFC and NFC championship games. Aaron Rodgers, where is he going to go? Matt LaFleur getting all of this nonsense about, oh, you know, him for him not going for the... Um, for him not going for the touchdown or for him to kick a field goal with two minutes left to go, it cost him a game. Come on, man. Did anybody see the game? I mean, sometimes I just think that someone's got to someone's gotta be a goat in terms of the reason why they lost. Sometimes you know the reason why you lost the game because the other team was better. Why don't we just say that? Why don't we just say in a game like this, there really wasn't anything anybody could do to... Uh, on the on the losing end that could have them win. Yeah, you can always go back and say you should have chose A when the correct answer when you know you chose B when the correct answer was A, and you should have gone left when you went right and all those things. Yeah, I mean after the fact, but I mean hey man, life ain't perfect. Everybody's gonna make some mistakes. So to sit there and talk about a sixty minute game to bring it down to a team not going for it on fourth and goal from the eight yard line when you're down by eight points, which means that even if you did score a touchdown on that you know, on fourth down, you would still have to make the two point conversion and with two minutes left to go, and the fact that at the very best you would be tied, and the fact you would be giving the ball back to the greatest quarterback, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, who's still uh, playing well and giving the opportunity for him with three timeouts and a two-minute warning to go down and at the very least kick a field goal to put all the blame on a decision to kick a field goal rather than go for it on fourth down at the eight-yard line and say that Matt LaFleur blew the game and now Aaron Rodgers is pissed off and everything. Come on, man. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I know one person who's like sitting there going, yeah, yeah, blame it on Coach LaFleur. That's Aaron Jones. He's one of the reasons why they lost the game. I blame it a lot more on Aaron Jones and this fumble than I do more than uh, Matt LaFleur deciding that uh, he was going to kick a field goal with um, about two minutes to go than to um, try to go for it on fourth down. So I, I'm not I'm not going to uh, you know sit there and kill Matt LaFleur or look for anybody to rip and say, you're the reason, you're the reason, I can't believe it. What are you going to do? You're going to fire Matt LaFleur? Can't believe Matt LaFleur did that. What are you going to do, fire his ass? Is that what you want to do? That, is, that the, is that the goal here? Now all of a sudden he's the bad coach. Oh, you know more about NFL coaching than you do? Than, than he does? All right, I'm not going to. It's like, come on now, come on. So Brady going for his seventh Super Bowl. Pat Mahomes going for his second consecutive Super Bowl championship. That's going to be the main discussion points for the uh, time that we're going to be discussing this. That's going to be the main thing. That's going to be discussed during this time. So we'll get into all of that today on the podcast here, Windows World and Sports, with me, your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I guess for Mahomes, it's like, what, one last chance for the greatest of them all to shock the world again? That'd be, that would be um, Brady, one last chance for him to, you know, go ahead and be like, hey, you know what? Tug on Superman's cape, spin into the wind, pull the mask off an of old Lone Ranger, but don't doubt me. And this has nothing to do with Bill Belichick. I don't think he's going to be like, yeah, fuck you, Bill. That's what the fuck I'm talking about. Who made who, bitch? No, he ain't going to be doing any of that. But, um, hey, you know what? LeBron James, this past season, he won an NBA championship at an advanced age for being a basketball player and playing at the level that he was playing at. Maybe I think that maybe motivated Tom Brady more than showing up Bill Belichick to say, see, I was the main reason why we won all those championships, even if he did think that. I mean, good for him, the motive, whatever motivate, motivates him to play well and 
that if that what happens, then is that what he needs to do? Then I guess go for it. But to you know really think that that's the reason that Tom Brady was the main reason, or that Bill Belichick was writing the coattails of Tom Brady. Wow, I tell you, what a slap in the face to the defense! What a slap in the face to Josh McDaniel, the offensive coordinator! What a slap slap in the face to uh, Romeo Cornell! What a slap in the face to everybody who played on defense! What a slap in the face to all of those guys to sit there. Like Teddy Bruschi and all those guys are going to be like, yeah, you know, we really didn't have too much to do with all those championships and the winning that we did. We just rode the coattail to Tom Brady, and that's the reason why we've uh, got all these championships, give and take, in that situation. But as I mentioned before, if Tom Brady, who I haven't spoke about what motivates him to play, is it Bill Belichick? I've never been to those private moments if he's ever going to discuss anything like that. But uh, whatever gets him to uh, play at a high level, hey, man, go for it. As long as you ain't breaking any laws or breaking any rules, committing any serious felonies, why do I care? Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So we'll be discussing a lot of that on the podcast today. UFC 257, Dustin Poirier stops Conor McGregor. <laughs> the perennial UFC lightweight contender, Shock McGregor beating him via TKO after swarming him with punches at 232 on the second round Saturday night to win the main event of UFC 240, uh, 257 in Abu Dhabi. Ah, how about that, man? So what happens? What are we talking about here? What's going to be happening next for Poirier? What's going to be happening next for McGregor? Who's Poirier going to fight next? Is it going to be for the lightweight title? Who will be McGregor's next opponent? And what does this mean his loss mean for him moving forward now. The shine, the luster, Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. Can he be replaced again? Can he be put back together again? He did it before, right? Didn't he do it before? He lost to uh, Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz, one of the Diaz brothers. He came back and it was a huge pay-per-view and all of these good things. And McGregor went on to do better things. I, I, I've said it before. And I said this when I was doing internet radio a few years ago at a station. I said this before. When... McGregor beat Eddie Alvarez back in November of 2016 to become the first UFC fighter to hold two belts simultaneously when he had the featherweight belt, who which he never defended. He knocked out Jose Aldo in about 13 seconds. I would have loved to see that rematch, but he knocked out Jose Aldo, never defended the featherweight title, moved up to lightweight, beat Eddie Alvarez, beat him at uh, the first UFC event at Madison Square Garden in New York City. And he was on top of the world. I mean, he was the man, not just in terms of MMA, but just in terms of boxing, fighting, anything to you. I mean, it's even, even in terms of just athletes general, there was only a few handful of people, athletes on this planet at that time that were bigger than Conor McGregor was that night in November at UFC 205, November of 2016. But that's when I think his, that's, that's when I think that he peaked as an MMA fighter. That's when I think his popularity, his dominance, everything, I want to rule the world and all this kind of stuff. I think that's when it was at his highest. And it's like, well, is McGregor ever going to get back to that again? No, 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 no. And I said that because he was talking about, yeah, I'm going to go off and have my kid and, you know, well, he's not going to have a kid. I mean, men can get pregnant last time I checked. But he said that, you know, his kid was going to be born. He wanted to be there for the first, for the birth of his first son. And he wanted to take some time off and this, that, and the other. And, of course, behind all of that was the fact that he wanted to um, fight Floyd Mayweather. So that was going to be in the works. So 
all of this stuff was swirling around and he had the popularity and he had the name and he had the recognition and he had the skills to do all these type of things. Well, he hasn't come close to that now. He hasn't come close to that since. So we talk about fighters, especially MMA, USC fighters, when they lose, when that aura finally is gone, it don't come back. Most MMA fighters never reach their greatest heights after losing multiple times. That's it. And now if you take a look at it, McGregor has lost a lot more times than he's won. He looked pretty good against a washed-up past his expiration date as a, a real fighter as far as being an elite fighter, Donald Cerrone. And everybody was like, ooh, McGregor, 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 McGregor. I was like, hold on, y'all. Let's kind of remember here. I mean, this was easy cannon fodder for this guy to make him look good, to put him in the octagon his first time back against Donald Cerrone. Let's see what happens when he steps up his game. Now, he did what he had to do. He beat Cerrone. He looked good, this, that, and the other. So, you know, job well done. Mission accomplished. But how was he going to fare when he faced tougher competition? And just because most people don't know who Dustin Poirier is, many people were sleeping on that. And everybody was talking about a potential rematch between McGregor and Khabib Demargamedov for the lightweight title. Well, that's not going to be happening anymore. And... You know, it might be a situation where McGregor eventually gets back to the point where he can fight for the championship again because of his name recognition and the amount of money that he can draw, the pay-per-view buys that he can uh, create because of who he is. I'm quite sure that he can be expedited to the front of the line a lot quicker than Leon Edwards, so to speak, even though I'd love to see Leon Edwards fight Conor McGregor. Any other really good lightweight who doesn't have that name, who doesn't have that cachet like McGregor does, but at 32 years old, with a boatload of money in the bank, does he really want to do this? I mean, there was nonsense about, you know, he wants to get in there and he wants to fight Manny Pacquiao in a boxing match with Manny Pacquiao. All this other bullshit. He has proper 12 and he has other things going on. And of course, he's the father and legal troubles that's been facing him over the past couple of years. It's like, once you lose that... Once you lose, once you finally come to the top of the mountain, once you finally get the prize, once your dreams are finally realized, and my, my dreams hadn't finally realized yet, but I'm waiting for uh, someone to get divorced from uh, Jay-Z. That's when my dreams will be realized. But when we speak about, well, when people speak about they've reached the top of their dreams, or they've reached the, the, the goal that they've been yearning and scratching and clawing and dreaming about for years and decades when they finally get there is like all right what do i do now i mean i could build on that i guess but all right what do i do now and if you're mcgregor you have to ask what do you do now you've got generational wealth you've got the fame and the fortune. You're you were a champion. Maybe it burns, and maybe it, that 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 still hungers for you to win championships. I don't know. I've never spoken to Conor McGregor about this, but the, the Conor McGregor that we all knew and loved and fell in love with, and all those type of things when he was ascending to uh, become the person that he is in terms of the notoriety that he that he has. That's 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 not coming back. Conor McGregor can't get any bigger. Conor McGregor can't get any more famous. 
so he can win championships. And I'm quite sure that would be great. Redemption song. And I'm not talking about Bob Barley or Stevie Wonder, but redemption song where he, he might come back and regain the title. And oh, how great that would be. But, you know, it's like, okay, what's going to be next for Conor McGregor? We'll see. We will see. So we'll talk about that. I want to mention uh, moving forward, not really going to talk too much about the NBA this week. Saw a lot of games on NBA League Pass and, I'm not going to be doing the every game. I'm going to be dissecting the Brooklyn Nets. One game, they look great. Oh, my goodness, they're championship contenders. The other game, they look bad. Oh, my goodness, you got to blow up the entire team, but this is never going to work. I'm not going to react on three-game losing streaks. I'm not going to react on four-game winning streaks in a season like this. I, I'm just not. I'm not going to react on a bad performance by Kyrie Irving. I'm not going to react on a bad performance by James Harden. I'm not going to react on an unbelievable performance by James Harden and Kyrie Irving. I'm not going to go nuts if the three go, go out there and score 110 points combined and Brooklyn wins the game 157 or 146. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Or neither am I going to go ahead and just go, oh my goodness, the sky is, sky is falling, danger, danger, danger. If the Nets lose to the Sacramento Kings 146 to 115 and Irving and KD and James Harden look despondent and Steve, Steve Nash has a deer in the headlights look and Dan Tony is like, what the fuck am I doing here? And I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not going to do this. What I'm not going to do at the world turns with the Brooklyn Nets. I'm not. I'm not going to be armchair. I'm not going to be psychoanalyzing everything Kyrie Irving says or the body language of James Harden or the interviews after the game with Charles Barkley and Shaq and Kenny Smith with Kevin Durant. And I'm not, I'm not doing any of that shit. Long season. There's going to be some ups. There are going to be some downs. The championship in the NBA is not won after 15 games, 18 games, 34 games, 46 games, 65 games. So there's a lot of games to be played for those guys to get it together. I'm guessing they will get it together. There's rumors going around that they're going to try to go after Kevin Love or they might try to go after JaVale McGee. McGee, I understand. Kevin Love, not so much. But still, I'm not going to play every podcast uh, let's go ahead and just go ad nauseum talking about the Brooklyn Nets. I'm not going to do that. So when there's something important, I will, but I'm not going to overreact. Um, so with that, that is my mandate for the most interesting team in the NBA. I will say that when you have that talent and you have that experiment, of course the Brooklyn Nets are going to be a team that people are going to be interested in listening to and talking about that type of thing. I just I it's I just can't do the I just can't do the reaction one way or the other. You know, I can't do the bipolar reaction with the Brooklyn Nets. When they win they're the greatest, when they lose they suck. I just can't I'm not gonna do it. So but I will talk about this as I'm recording this today, one year uh, anniversary of the helicopter crash that killed Los Angeles Lakers legend Kobe Bryant and his beautiful daughter Gianna, age thirteen and Along with seven seven other members, including the pilot who was in the uh, who was in the helicopter, and I've purposely I had to work today, so really didn't have the time, even if I wanted to, but stayed away from the coverage in terms of the anniversary. And hey, I'm, look, I'm a guy who on this podcast every year is going to talk about Otis Redding dying and Sam Cook dying on December 10th, and talk about Len Bias dying. So look, I'm I, I'm. I'm not going to sit there and criticize uh, folks. ESPN, I think, is doing a lot of Kobe Bryant remembrance 
NBA TV showing games, Kobe Bryant on the one-year anniversary. I don't think they're going to glorify it or anything. They're just going to take this time to uh, remember it. And I'm guilty. I'm guilty of this. Why we always focus on when a person dies more so than when a person lives. I mean, I'm going to sit there coming up next in next month and I'm going to talk about Malcolm X being assassinated by uh, that cult they call the uh, the Black Muslims in February. I'm going to mention that. I mentioned April 4th, the uh, day Martin Luther King was assassinated, 366 days before I was born. Talk about, of course, December 10th, Otis Redding, Sam Cooke dying, June 19th, Len Bias dying. Why don't we ever talk about and celebrate these people when they were born? Now, yes, we have the holiday for Martin Luther King, but for the most part, you might know when, for instance, your favorite athlete or a person that you are close to or grew up with or what idolized or whatever, you might know when they died. But do you know when they do you know when they were born? Like for instance, those who idolized John Lennon when he was assassinated by Mark David Chapman. Do you know when John Lennon was born? I'm quite sure, you know, John Lennon and Beatles fans probably know this, but just for a lot of people who love his music and love what he stood for and and all those type of things. You might go to Strawberry Fields in Central Park in New York City on the day that he died in remembrance, but do you do that also when when he was born or the day that he was born? Do we do that? Do we do that with Salvador Sanchez? Do we do that with Lyman Bostock? Do we do that with Thurman Munson? Do we do that with Bobby Phils? Do we do that with uh, anybody? Do we do that with Dale Earnhardt? Uh, not Junior, but Dale Earnhardt. Do we, do we do that? In terms of we might know when he died and we might go ahead and give our reverence and memories like the corners of Unbind and Think, think about the good times and good parts and what they did and how they made us feel and all that kind of stuff. We, we do that in remembrance of the day when they die, but how much energy do we put into the remembrance and the hallelujahs and the thank goodness he was around and the getting togethers and the misty eyes and the remember whens when uh, on the day that uh, he was born. So... Just, I, I'm not going to get too much into it because it just breaks my heart a little bit. And look, you know, Len Bias was my guy in terms of heartbreaking. I can't believe he died. It took me a couple of weeks. It took me a week for me to even function as a human being again when Len Bias died. Still hurts to this day to talk about it. So, I mean, and, and the thing about Kobe, then it's never a good time, I would guess, around that age group. For someone to die. My dad died at 90. I can sit there and be like, hey man, look, my dad died at 90. His illness was very short, no pain, no suffering, none of that kind of stuff. And he lived 90 years. He was born in deep segregation and he lived to see the first black man become president of the United States. His life was one of celebration and longevity. And I got 48 years of living and being with that man. So when my dad died, while it was sad and then still struggling with it and still hurts and I still miss my dad every single day, it's it's not a painful memory because like I mentioned before, I was lucky. I was lucky for the time that I had to spend with him and I was lucky the fact that uh, he lived to be 90 years old and it was lucky and fortunate and he was blessed of how he, of how he died. No long illness, no pain, no discomfort, none of that stuff. He just went in the hospital uh, to check out some stuff and then 
about three or four days later, he, he was gone. Just 90 years old, man. You can't live forever. But with Kobe, I mean, the fact that, uh, and plus with his daughter, 13 years old, Jesus fucking in Christ, but that's just horrible to the, to the core. But, you know, 42 years old, and the way that Kobe was continuing to mature as a human being, it was, it was unbelievable. If you take a look at where he started, where he first came into the public eye, and the type of person that he was, and the way that he evolved, and the way that he grew, and the way that he matured, and the person that he turned out to be, the first seven, six from he came into the league, Kobe was in the league, what, 18 years old, something like that? When was, when did he, I know he came into the league, 96, somewhere around there, right? So we're speaking about he was 17, 18 years old, right? So if you read Jeff Perlman's book, speaking about the Lakers dynasty, the mini dynasty that they had with Kobe and Shaq, and you just read the book, Kobe, as I mentioned before, and I've said this before many times, from about 18 to 25, 26, the guy was an asshole. That guy was a complete and utter asshole. Spoiled, privileged, pampered, just just a just a selfish, immature, insecure, lost human being. Just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you, you, you rooted for someone to whip his ass. If you ever read the book, or if you ever listened to the audio book, and you're hearing all this shit about Kobe, the way he treated his uh, coaches, the way he treated his teammates, the way he just treated people in general, you, it was almost, you, you read, you read the book and you're like, man, someone should have whooped his ass. I mean, you really do cheer for Shaq. Like, come on, Shaq, whoop his ass. Come on, Sabaki Walker, whoop his ass. I mean, the guy was a dick. The guy was a 300% dick. Dick, dick, dick. So to go from there, to go from being that person to the way he grew and the way he matured, I think his life really turned around after uh, he was accused of the crime of sexual assault in, in uh, Colorado. I think that slowly started to make that turn. And then Shaq was traded and the team started to be dismantled in terms of winning a championship and he went a few years with the Lakers being nothing but mediocre I think that humbled him a lot even though he was doing a lot of scoring and he was you know one of the he was regarded as the best player in the league even though he didn't win the MVPs and all of those type of things but you know, LeBron came along and that started to take some of his shine and you know LeBron and those guys were starting to become the quote-unquote saviors of the NBA because Kobe was also coming out of the time when the NBA, in terms of its popularity, was really, really low. When kids didn't want their, when parents didn't want their kids to have posters of NBA players on their wall because the um, the um, uh, stereotype or the image that was portrayed by folks out there, the the the, the public, the uh, basketball public, the sports public was these black kids from these inner cities who come into the NBA. They can't shoot jump shots. They don't know what a 15 footer is. They have cornrows. They have tattoos. All they do is smoke blunts. They come in with their gang ridden posse. Uh, these guys are not intelligent because none of these guys are going to college. They're disrespectful. They don't know how to play basketball. All they do in their off time is go to the clubs and go to the strip clubs and go to uh, the joints and you've got people shooting on each other. And that was the time you had the Portland Trail Blazers, who were known as the Portland Trail Gangsters, and you had the Malice at the Palace with Ron Artest, and you had all of this stuff swirling around between Jordan retiring 
for the first time with, or excuse me, the second time after the uh, lockout, or you know, the Bulls won the championship, he retired, the lockout happened, that set the NBA on a bad course. Then you had the Olympics international games, the uh, NBA wasn't dominating like they should. You had, again, the thing, the NBA, the league was starting to become a lot more African American, and you had a lot more African American from lower income neighborhoods and communities, and they brought their swag, they brought their flavor. I mean, goodness sakes alive. Allen Iverson, my boy from Georgetown University, Allen Iverson, I mean, this guy was just like public enemy number one to all suburbanites and to all those from upper middle class. I shouldn't say all, but all. Decent amount of folks who were living in upper middle class communities all over this country, man. I mean, it was like if you knew anything about Allen Iverson, all you knew was practice. We're talking about practice. A guy who was uncomfortable, a guy who wore cornrows, a guy who had tattoos, a guy who hung out with the wrong type of uh, folks, a guy who spoke broken English, a guy who didn't know how to dress himself, a guy who was a pain in the ass, a guy who shot too much, a guy who offended the, uh, the, the, the fundamentals of basketball, the Bobby Knights and the John Woodens of the world who was like two-handed chest pass and make sure you dribble, you know, the fundamental, fundamental, fundamentals. Oh, my goodness gracious. They were so turned off by Allen Iverson and, you know, on top of the fact that he didn't speak the King's English, the fact that he didn't wear a suit and tie like Jordan did. He would come in, you know, baggy pants and all that type of stuff. The fact that he had cornrows, the fact that, uh, you know, he hung out with his boys from uh, Hampton, Virginia, who weren't uh, the most, shall we say, um, Let's put it this way, they weren't going, they, they weren't graduates of the University of Virginia. Let's put it that way. So for a while there, the league, it was Allen Iverson and Stephon Marbury and the and the Portland Trailblazers, who were then known as the, the Trail Gangsters, the Thug Blazers, I mean Rasheed Wallace, J.R. Ryder, Darius Miles. It was it was a bad time in the NBA. And Kobe was mixed into all of that. And if you read the book, so what what, what Kobe tried to do. After trying to do everything, Michael Jordan walk like him, talk like him, lick his lips like him, stick out his tongue like him, eat like him. I don't know. Maybe he tried to have sex with Vanessa just like uh, Jordan did. I don't know. But it was a situation where Kobe just tried to do everything that Jordan was trying to do. Then he saw guys like Kevin uh, Garnett and these guys and all these guys who were from the hood and from the street. And he tried to go ahead. Remember the rap album that Kobe Bryant tried to make? You know, because he was trying to be street and he started trying to dress like a thug and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, here was a man who was completely lost in terms of who he was as a human being. He went the same thing. He went through the same thing that Chris Webber did. Chris Webber for years, because when he was in Detroit and he lived in a poor neighborhood, he would go to Country Day out in the suburbs, one of the upper crust, upper tier high schools, private high schools up there in, you know, Richfield, Whitefield, you know, um, uh, Detroit. So here's a guy who had the intelligence to be able to do well, not just playing basketball, but academically do well enough to go to a school in the upper crust of Michigan, of Detroit, Michigan. But then he lived in a hood where he had to be dealing with folks who, let's put it this way, weren't really interested in trying to get that education like Country Day was given out. So, of course, he was being called a sellout and he was called being soft and, you know, he was 
you know, white man, you know, white white man with black skin and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, Weber wanted to prove how tough he was, that he was from the hood and that he was from the ghetto and all this kind of stuff. And he got to the Wizards. That led him in a lot of trouble, a whole lot of trouble. And it took Chris Weber a long time to finally realize, hey, you know what? Being smart and being black, it's uh, not really a bad thing. Being able to speak proper English, not really a bad thing. That doesn't mean that you're less black than anybody else. So Chris Webber had to go through all those type of things. Grant Hill had to deal with that bullshit. Kobe Bryant was one of those who, at first, at first was just too lost to really just say, "Hey, look, man, you know what? I speak fluent, fluent. Um, I speak several languages fluently, or I speak Italian fluently. I'm intelligent. I'm worldly." I ain't from the streets of Philadelphia, born and raised like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I wasn't born in Compton. I wasn't born in Inglewood. I wasn't born in Liberty City. I wasn't born in Southeast D.C. I wasn't born in the bad parts of Richmond. I wasn't born in, um, I wasn't born in Cabrini Greens in Chicago. I just wasn't. So that doesn't make me any less street or that doesn't make me any less black just because you guys are from the street and from the hood and I'm not. Just because I had a father who played basketball and he provided for me, we lived in a nice community. That doesn't make me less black or less 100 or less real than you folks who didn't have a father and grew up in poverty. Shit. So Kobe had to go through that bullshit, and I think that fucked him up for a while. So to finally get to the point where he was, when he just finally said, fuck it, you know what? I'm going to be Kobe Bryant, and goddamn, I really love being Kobe Bryant. The fact that he got to that point and became such an outstanding human being, the fact that he turned his life around, just awesome. Just awesome. So for him to continue to be striving, I mean, he did everything that he did on the basketball court. That was cool and that was done. But to finally get to that point where he was in life where he was just, he finally got it in terms of, I'm going to embrace being me, I love being me, the strength that comes from being me, the confidence that comes from being me, and nobody, no situation is going to throw me off from that. So this brilliant man, this renaissance man, was able to fully be himself and help out those around him, which in turn helped out humanity. To see him go like he did, as I mentioned before, not only with the other seven folks, but also with his daughter, it's just, it's just sad. It's just sad. So all of that I'm trying to say is the fact that I'm not paying any much attention to the coverage of Kobe Bryant. I was I I I, I was a witness of the whole Kobe Bryant deal, and uh, I'm I'm quite sure that Kobe right now is averaging about 27 points per per game in the uh, Heavenly Basketball Association. And I mentioned before, I bet you him and Will Chamberlain are just talking mad shit up there. And I'm quite sure Gianna is getting herself ready to be in the uh, women's league up there in the uh, up there in, uh, in in with the Angels, so I'm quite sure that uh, Kobe is Kobe is looking down and making sure Vanessa's taking care of things and his kids are doing well. And I think Kobe has a lot of things on his plate still. And luckily for him, he's got eternity to make sure that everything is all is kosher. If you believe that type of thing. But you might just think that he's in the ground fucking. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So those are the type of things that uh, I was going to speak on. Spoke about the NBA. Kobe got that uh, done. Going to go a little bit later. Talking a little bit more about uh, the UFC 257 and Conor McGregor. Going to be speaking about the AFC, NFC Championship Games. Speaking about Matthew Stafford. Where is he going to go? 
why some teams should be focusing more on Matthew Stafford than say Deshaun Watson speaking about that and speaking about the Super Bowl. But I want to begin the podcast. People are sitting up there going, wait a minute, man, all that rambling you were doing, you haven't even started the podcast yet? Jesus, fuck. No, I want to be, it's very important that I get this in also before I go ahead and we uh, take our first dance break. Hall of Famer, former home run king, Hank Aaron, died Friday morning. They had a memorial service for him today. He died Friday morning at 86. Aaron was an American icon in every single flipping way, both in his playing career and his contribution to this country. If you want to talk about his baseball career, you can talk about Babe Ruth and you can talk about Ty Cobb. And, you know, I mean, how in the world are you going to sit there and talk about which one is better, 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 better when you're speaking about eras? Oh, Babe Ruth. Everybody talks about Babe Ruth, right? Babe Ruth played when the game was segregated. Babe Ruth only played against the best white players. And that we've known that when you integrate and when you mix in folks from other backgrounds that uh, all of a sudden now the domination of white folks really isn't that strong. So I would love to see the, I would love to see Babe Ruth and see what he would do against the entire greatness of folks who played baseball. Maybe if they were, maybe if they, their skin color wasn't white. I'm quite sure Babe Ruth would still be awesome. Babe Ruth would still be one of the greatest players of his era. But I'm going to put my money more on Josh Gibson more than Babe Ruth if we're speaking about if those guys had the opportunity and everything was on equal playing field or even close to being on an equal playing field where, you know what, Josh Gibson didn't have to worry about segregation and worry about oppression. On an even playing field in terms of just going out there and playing ball, skin tone and all that type of stuff doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is if you can play, there'd be so many of those Negro League baseball players you put them into the uh, major league baseball uh, uh, era during that time where there weren't a lot, where they weren't allowed to play. Shit, you think Babe Ruth is going to hit seven hundred and fourteen home runs? He would hit a he would hit a gangload of home runs. You better believe he would, but he wouldn't be hitting seven fourteen if he was facing the likes of Satchel Page once every uh, couple of days, or the Hispanic Satchel Page once every couple of days. So we're speaking about Henry Aaron. After integration, where you can kind of start dividing which player is the greatest and which player should be at the table for greatest players of all time in the game, Hank Aaron should be, if not at the head of the table, damn near close. If you speak about the accolades that he had during his playing career, 25-time All-Star. Played in Major League Baseball from 1954 to 1976, almost entirely with the Atlanta Braves organization, first in Milwaukee, and then in Atlanta, where he settled for the rest of his life. In 1957, Aaron led led the organization to their first World Series pennant since 1914. He was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 1982. He passed Babe Ruth on the all-time home run leaderboard in 1974 with a 715th home run he finished his career with 755 home runs which stood for decades until Barry Bonds passed him and set the mark at 762 I I, I, I want to just sidebar just for a quick second just for a quick second bear with me if 
folks are going to sit up there and talk about, well, you know, guess what, man? Fuck that bullshit. Um, Hank Aaron is still the guy. He's still the home run king because Barry Bonds cheated because he used steroids. And if he didn't, if he didn't use steroids, there's no way that he would be uh, anywhere close to the home run record sent by Hank Aaron. So I'm not going to acknowledge that Babe Ruth, excuse me, that uh, Barry Bonds is the home run king. For me, 762 don't mean shit. The number that will always stand is 755. That's cool. You you have that right. I'm I'm not I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to say you're crazy or you're wrong or anything like that. You you have a good point in saying that. Hey, during the steroid era, Bonds had an advantage in the history of the game. If we're speaking about numbers, he had an advantage there that Hank Aaron didn't have by using PEDs, and because of that, he was able well. You know, along with a lot of other things, God-given natural talent and him being one of the five best baseball players who ever played the game. All those things put into the stew came out to the fact that he hit 762 home runs. You say that's uh, asterisk. You say that you're not going to acknowledge that. All right. I get you. Not going to argue the point. But I will say this. If you're going to ding or if you're not going to fully legitimize Barry Bonds for hitting 762, are you going to do the same thing for Babe Ruth? Now, hey, I understand. Hey, you know what? Babe Ruth didn't use any steroids. I get that. I understand that. But as I mentioned before, is Babe Ruth hitting 714 home runs if you played in the same era that Hank Aaron did? Because when Hammer and Hank was playing, the game was integrated. When Babe Ruth was playing, the game was segregated. So Babe Ruth had the advantage that Hank Aaron didn't have Babe Ruth had the advantage that Barry Bonds didn't have because Babe Ruth didn't play against the best ball players in their in, during that time. But Babe Ruth hit a, again. Babe Ruth would have hit a gang of home runs if the game was integrated. Babe Ruth would still be a giant in the game of baseball if the game was integrated. He just wouldn't have been as successful. Because the competition level would have been greater. But he still would have been great. So if you're going to knock, or if you're not or if you're going to delegitimize the 762 of the 762, the number 762, the homers of Barry Bonds, if you're going to delegitimize that because of steroids, are you going to delegitimize or asterisk Babe Ruth 714 because he played in an era where it was segregated? That's all I'm asking. That's all I'm asking. For me, Barry Bonds is the home run king of 762. Doesn't mean anything. And I think I've always said this before. The fact that Barry Bonds is now the home run king. The fact we can maybe now take a look more at what Hank Aaron did in terms of him being a complete ball player. Ball player. Because Hank Aaron was far from just a home run guy. Which makes it even more unbelievable what he did. To even strengthen his, to even strengthen the argument even more that he's the best player who's ever played the game of baseball. The fact that we can still take away 750, I think Sarah Spain said this on Around the Horn. The fact that we could take away 755 home runs that he hit and Hank Aaron still had over 3,000 hits. Goodness gracious sakes alive. How great was this guy? He's still, the game's all-time leader in RBI with almost 2,300. He's still the leader, all-time leader in total bases. 
He ranks third in career hits, uh, 3,771. As an outfielder, he won three gold gloves, as well as the National League batting title in 1956-1959. And then in 1957, he won the National League MVP. And in the 1970, he won the Lou Gehring Memorial Award for Character. I mean, goodness gracious sakes alive, man. What didn't this guy do? The only thing that doesn't stand out that's eye-popping is the fact that he didn't steal as many bases as Willie Mays. Or if you want to even go back a couple of generations before, steal as many bases as Ty Cobb. But but other than that, I mean, you take a look at the baseball player. Yeah, Ted Williams might have been the greatest hitter who ever lived. But as far as a defender goes, he he stunk. Not only was Aaron a five-tool baseball player, this guy was also one of the best defenders or best outfielders in the game. And again, 755 home runs. Unbelievable. And again, he overcame this. He, well, he, uh, he did all this while overcoming racism in the Deep South and received death threats at the time when he was pursuing Babe Ruth's record. I mean... This guy is unbelievable. Ted Williams got all bent out of shape because of the uh, seven newspapers in Boston that would write negative things about him. And he was like, you know what? Fuck you guys. I ain't never talking to you guys again. And he did this after his rookie season or his second season. And guess what? He never did. Ted Williams' last hit as a uh, major leaguer with a home run, round and round the bases, didn't acknowledge the fans, didn't do anything. He thought the fans were uh, a little bit too harsh on him, so he never really acknowledged the fans and this, that, and the other. Could you imagine Ted Williams if he had to face the bullshit that Hank Aaron had to face? How great of a baseball player would he have been? How much of a toll that would have took on the overall numbers and the overall greatness of Ted Williams if he had to face the same bullshit that Hank Aaron did? Not just through death threats and not just through hate mail and all those things, just as far as being a black man in the, in the divided, racist, ignorant states of America during that time. You take a look at all of these great ball players. I mean, Mickey Mantle damn near drunk himself to death because he thought that he was going to die early. Just think if this guy had that type of characteristic in him and he was black and faced the type of bullshit that Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and all of these other great black ball players had to deal with. Would Willie Mays and all those, well, really, would, would Mickey Mantle be as great as Hank Aaron? So if you take a look at all of the great white ball players of their time, I mean, Hank Greenberg, he had to go through bullshit when he was uh, playing in the major league for Detroit, great ball player. He had to go through a lot of bullshit because he was Jewish at the time where this country really wasn't keen on Jews doing anything about that. So really, if you had white skin, uh, you know, you, you were pretty much in high cotton. If you could play, you could live in any type of neighborhood that you wanted to. You had the privilege. You had the right. You had the, you had the advantage of being an American citizen and everything that comes along with it. All the, all the goodies of being an American icon, of being an American hero. Hank Aaron didn't have those type of things. And yet, and still, he still put up these type of things. If Hank Aaron was allowed to live his life like a white man during that time, good Lord have mercy, he might have put up 850 home runs throughout his career. He might have had 3,600 RBI. He might have hit more, he might have had more hits than Pete Rose if he was allowed to live his life like a regular white man. If he was allowed to live his life and the only thing that was uh, getting under his skin, the only thing that he had to deal with was fans' expectations and writers' from newspapers writing bad things about him. So the guy was an American icon, but yet and still, if he didn't have those obstacles to overcome, would he have been the human being that he was? You know, adversity breeds strength. 
Now, if you're coming from Mobile, Alabama, back in the 1930s, you were born in 1934, so you have Hank Aaron being born in object poverty in Mobile, Alabama, wanting to be a, a pilot, and then his father saying, no, you can't really be a pilot because Negroes don't be pilots. Negroes cannot be pilots. And being a baseball player, and he's like, no, nah, Negroes can't play baseball either. Maybe you can be a carpenter. Maybe you can be a janitor. I mean, that's a good job for a Negro um, back during that generation. That was a thought. That was a feeling. Hey, Garen was like, fuck that, man. It's either going to be baseball player or bust. Jackie Robinson came down, gave a speech. A young Hank Aaron saw that, and he said, that's what I want to be. First, I wanted to be a Tuskegee Airman. Now, I want to be like Jackie Robinson. So, that put him on a path. That put him on a journey to get him to be uh, the person that he was, an American icon, an American hero. And it's amazing. We, are, we, we talk about folks in the history books. And... I've been saying this for decades, and people call me silly and ridiculous and all those type of things. I mean, we, we take a look at sports, and we take a look at athletes, and we take a look at musicians, and we take a look at other folks who have shaped this country, who have shaped this world, who have shaped this society. And we never think we might we might bring in there Jackie Robinson, we might bring in a Joe Lewis. We should, and we should. But there's so many others who have sacrificed. There are so many others who contributed. There are so many others who made such meaningful conversation, uh, meaningful uh, um, uh, contributions to the society. And Hank Aaron was one of them. But we, we take a look at Hank Aaron in the prism of, well, you know, he was just a baseball player who broke Babe Ruth's record and wonderful, fantastic. He showed a lot of courage and he showed a lot of strength. But, but what did that have to do with the way that we're, living right now he, he didn't pass a bill he didn't make a law he, he wasn't he didn't serve our country in some type of a political forum but what, what are you talking about why do we need in a history class and we're speaking about george washington and we're speaking about andrew jackson and we're speaking about abraham lincoln and we're speaking about harriet tubman and you know for the last semester of the school year for a couple of days we speak about Martin Luther King Jr and the civil rights movement and well Henry Aaron was just a baseball player right no 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 Henry Aaron Hank Aaron Mr Aaron was so much more than that the things that he again the, the strength that if you tell these students of all races faces and places is the strength that this man gained the obstacles that this person had to overcome. One thing I notice about the school, um, these kids today, here I go sounding old, right? These kids today, goddammit. No. But one thing is that because of the world that they live in right now and some of the things that they have access to that, that we didn't have or that the generation before me didn't have, and especially my dad's generations and such and such and such, because some of the overt in outrageous racism that these that people from Hank Aaron's generation had to face these kids today who are in ninth, 10th, 11th grade they 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 they're like well it's ridiculous i don't you know I, they they can't comprehend they can't deal you, know, you got black lives matter and all this kind of stuff but you know when you're speaking about legalized racism when you're speaking about a country which legally did everything that they could to make sure that black people didn't get nothing, that black people remain second-class citizens. For someone who's an eighth grader or for someone who's in high school, 
during the year 2020, 2021, they, they don't get it. They don't understand it. They can't comprehend it. So it's like, yeah, you know, they kind of maybe tune it out or they kind of poo-poo it or it's like, yeah, you know, whatever. That was way back in the day. No, you got to take it from a different angle. You have to take the fact that, you know, you have these great American heroes and legends and icons like Hank Aaron, who, yeah, was a fabulous baseball player. But guess what? He did all of that stuff through the through the storm of racism, the storm of oppression, the storm of discrimination. And what we're facing today, what you're facing today, and what you're going to be facing when you get out of high school, what you're going to be facing when you, if you go to college, or if you go to trade school, or whatever, and once you reach your mid-20s, and your 30s, and your 40s, and this type of shit, this is the type of lessons that you could be learning for yourself, to build yourself, to build your character, so you can become more successful, not just financially, but as a husband, as a human being, as a member of society, is to learn some of these things that Hank Aaron went through, to learn some of these things that Jackie Robinson went through, to learn some of these things that Bill Russell went through. Take these things, incorporate these things, learn from these things, grow, become better, and move this country forward, move this country in the right direction. That's the impact of Henry Aaron. That's the reason why Henry Aaron should be celebrated. That's the reason why we need to look at Henry Aaron more than just a guy who was just a one hell of a baseball player. Just because of a guy who hit 755 home runs. He did much more than that as far as being an American hero. If that's all he did, that doesn't make someone an American hero. If all you are is just a great ball player, that doesn't mean that you're an American hero. That doesn't mean that you deserve the accolades. That doesn't mean you deserve the respect that some of these folks that we're talking about in terms of the, 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 the folks that built and grew this country. We're not, we're not going to give you that respect. Barry Bonds was one of the greatest baseball players of all time, but Barry Bonds was all about Barry Bonds. So when Barry Bonds dies, the epitaph could be great baseball player, 762 home runs all around, maybe the greatest of them all, but that's where it's going to end. Mainly because of people like Henry Aaron, Jackie Robinson, and others paving the way to where he didn't have to go through the shit that they had to go through. But yet still, what's Barry Bonds doing right now to contribute to society? And that's his choice. That's his choice. Doesn't make him a horrible human being. And I don't know, maybe Barry Bonds behind the scenes is doing something. Maybe he's uh, doing something that he doesn't want anybody to know about except those that he's helping. I don't know. So I'm not going to castigate and call him a horrible human being, but what the impact that Barry Bonds is having since he left the field is on a worldwide scale and a, and a uh, society scale has been minimal. When Hank Aaron left the game of baseball, I mean, this guy became an activist for civil rights himself being a victim of racial inequalities. He joined the Atlanta Braves as an executive and then campaigned for more black players to uh, go ahead and to think about what's going to be happening. Where are you going to be going? What are you going to be doing when your playing days are over? Because remember, once your playing days are over as a ball player, you're just another Negro here in this country. And that don't mean shit. So you have to prepare yourself. So when Henry Aaron retired, not only did he uh, become uh, very uh, uh, engaged in the social activities, which helped grow this country, but as a businessman, he became a role model for black youth and for blacks and even for those who were still playing baseball. 
Or for those who are playing sports and like, what am I going to do after my playing days are over? This was before the brand. This was before you could build your brand on social media. This was before Instacheat and Facegram and all of those other social media camp, uh, campaigns. This was before Hertz and Nike and Gatorade and Allstate and all of these other countries were coming to see what they can do about trying to uh, uh, throw endorsements at athletes. This was all before any of this shit happened. Now, this was before... Guy from making 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year and having contracts that when by the time they were done in their mid 30s, you could have um, made as much as 200 million dollars. All of this was before any of that happened. So if you were someone of the generation of a Hank Aaron, you didn't have those avenues. So what did he do? He became a businessman in the Atlanta area. He became a CEO who controlled a business empire that included import car dealerships and fruit food franchises, was BMW's first black auto dealer, and built an empire so successful that it had to be and that it had the distinction of being the 2004 Auto Dealer of the Year. In 2017, he was the recipient of the Black Enterprises A.G. Gaston Lifetime Achievement Award, the multimedia company's highest entrepreneurial honor. So this guy became a symbol of black power. Truly, black power, any type of power is about controlling the businesses, controlling the industry, controlling being a power player. That's what it's all about. It's not about stepping and fetching. It's about being the guy who's writing the checks for the person who's stepping and fetching. And a lot of times, I mean, we step and fetch and the white man's the one who's up there paying our checks. So if when you pay, when you have someone else paying your checks, you are fully not in charge of, of, of what's going on in terms of where you're going financially. Hank Aaron was one of the first black men who made that transition from playing sports to being that businessman. That's powerful stuff. And if I'm in a classroom, again, and I'm teaching, and I'm teaching to a group of students who are coming from a lower class incomes, lower class neighborhoods, I've got to show them this. I've got to tell them this. I've got to tell them the story. I got to let them know about this. Oh, and by the way, Hank Aaron didn't go to college. Hank Aaron didn't wasn't Hank Aaron was a guy who dropped out of high school because he was so focused on becoming a ball player. So we're not talking about a guy. Hank Aaron became this unbelievable businessman. He didn't go to well, MIT. He didn't go to Warford. He didn't go to any of the the, the, the Ivy League schools. He didn't go to any of these other schools that have been uh, that have, that have been. Uh, churning out these type of business folks? No. No, it was through his smarts and through his intelligence. So you, you can tell also some of these kids who are underprivileged, who might not have the, um, who might not have the things that others don't. They meant just because, you know, you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth or you weren't born on second base because you were born not just at the batter's box, but doggone in the on-deck circle. Or maybe in the farm lease, you're not even in the majors yet to even get on the baseball field to get into the batter's box box to get yourself on second base because you're not at that point yet. That don't mean that everything is all, uh, that you have to go out and, you know, not give a shit or not be concerned about your education or anything like that. Take a look at Hank Aaron. Take a look at what he did. And he did it with grace. He did it with class. He did it with um, dignity. He did it with strength. He wasn't stepping and fetching. 
He wasn't uh, handkerchief hanky. He wasn't doing. He wasn't handkerchief hanky. Wasn't doing any of that bullshit. So you know, Hank Aaron was his own man. You know, people up there talking about who don't know any better. Well, I mean, I heard Bob Costas. If you take a look at the Sports Century on Hank Aaron, Bob Costas is sitting up there talking about. Oh, you know what, Hank? Uh, I was speaking to him one time, and then you know, I said, yeah, you know, what you went through breaking Babe Ruth's record and all the shit and all the bullshit that you had to deal. He wasn't saying that stuff, but basically, he was saying, you know, hey, all the stuff that you had to go through, uh, your kids and your family's lives being threatened and all that stuff, death threats, and you know, having to walk around with security guards and your life basically being at living hell for a couple of years just because. You were going to break Babe Ruth's record and white America didn't want to see you do that. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, that's bad. But, you know, you also have to remember that there were millions upon millions upon millions of people, white people, who were cheering that you went ahead and you broke the record. Uh, Mr. Costas, with all due respect, sir, that's kind of a bullshit kind of like, you know, so what, what is Hank Aaron supposed to be like? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that makes up for all the shit I had to go through for a couple of years. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm quite sure Hank Aaron knew that there were the millions upon millions of folks out there rooting for him to break Babe Ruth's record. But guess what? Were they, were they going to, uh, defend him if someone wanted to shoot him? Were they going to, uh, help stop a kidnapping if someone wanted to take their, his kids? I mean, yeah, that, that's nice. And go back to my theory about, you know what? Hey, you were in a classroom today of 35 kids, and you say that the class was terrible and horrible, but I tell you what, man, out of those 35 kids that were in your classroom, 26 of them were awesome. So what are you talking about? Yeah, 26 might have been great out of the 35, but guess what? You had four kids that were absolute fucking assholes, and the other five who were nothing but followers. Yeah, so I didn't have to worry about the 26th. What made the class horrible was the fucking nine that were giving me fucking shit. So just because a majority or just because a good number of people were like, yeah, go Hank, go, we want you to do this. I mean, shit, man, that don't take away the hell that he had to go through from, I don't know how much of my of the minority that it was that were making his life a living hell, but that doesn't make up for anything. I would be mad as hell. I would still be mad as hell. And for a long time, Hank Aaron was mad as hell. I'd go through all of that nonsense. You guys are still up there talking about Joe DiMaggio, the greatest baseball player who's ever lived. And you guys are glorifying Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays is still running around talking about, I need to be considered the greatest baseball player who's ever lived and all this nonsense. You guys aren't recognizing me. You guys are kind of putting me on the back shelf. Thank goodness for Bud Selig to, uh, when he became the missioner, commissioner of the, uh, of Major League Baseball to change that around. But yeah, man, so, you know, Hank Aaron remained a role model up until his death. Did you realize up until the time he died that he joined civil rights leaders in getting the COVID-19 vaccine earlier this month to show black Americans getting vac- vaccinated is safe? Still trying to make an impact in his 80s. American hero. Boy, we lost some really good... Uh, we lost some folks in baseball, a generation, some of the luminaries of baseball. If you're just speaking about going on playing, man, we've lost Bob Gibson and Whitey Ford and Lou Brock, Tom Seaver, Al Kaline, Joe Morgan, Phil Negro, Tommy Lasorda, 93, died, what, a couple of weeks ago. Don Sutton just recently died. Mm, I tell you what, though, man, I bet you right now, 
that Hank Aaron, the pursuit of Hank Aaron to play for their team in the Heavenly Baseball League, woo, that free agency is going to be more intense than anything that we could ever imagine. Could you imagine up there the team that's going to be getting Hank Aaron? Man, I bet you Tom Seaver, I bet you Bob Gibson, when those guys went up there, man, I, Lou Brock, Joe Morgan, man, I bet you those guys were heavily pursued. I bet you Casey Stengel was doing everything humanly possible, man, to go ahead and uh, see what he could do to get those boys on their team, to get those guys on their team. Now you got Tommy Lasorda. I'm quite sure he's managing already. I'm quite sure. I'm wondering if he's managing a team in heaven that's close to Los Angeles. But, um, yeah, when Hank Aaron, man, I'm quite sure. I don't know what the Angels are doing for him up there to see what he can do to play for their baseball team. But it's going to be, uh, it's going to be something. Maybe when I get up there, maybe I can ask him, hey, exactly, what did you, when you first got up to heaven, exactly what did you do? After I get reunited with my parents and say hello to my grandparents and get to know them and all that good stuff and go see a concert with Otis Redding and Gangstar and Sam Cooke and watch a couple of sporting events, as I mentioned before, watch uh, Ali Frazier fight number 3,644. Those guys are going to do the rematch of the rematch of the rematch of the rematch of the rematch, taking the game, as I mentioned before, the Heavenly Basketball Association. Woo! Can't see what it's... I can't wait to see uh, Maurice Stokes and Hank Gathers and and um, Jumpin' Joe Folks and Wilt Chamberlain and Kobe Bryant go at it, go at it with each other. And, man, it's going to be something else, man. It's going to be something else. So maybe taking... Maybe taking a Biggie Smalls concert. I don't know. I'll do something. But, uh, you know, maybe see Big L. Maybe uh, see Big Pun. Maybe those guys are going to be together traveling through the uh, traveling through heaven to, uh, you know, put on their performances. Maybe when they come into town, I'll uh, go ahead and see them. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, Hank Aaron, man. God bless you. God bless you. You are truly an American hero. World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Getting down and talking about what's happening now in the Super Bowl, which is now still, do they, do they call it the Super Bowl, the big game? Whatever, man. I'm calling it the Super Bowl. Tampa Bay versus Kansas City. You know, I'm thinking about it. If you take a look at the pandemic and the fact that the um, you can't go anywhere to watch the uh, game for real and big parties are going to be uh, poo-pooed about this could be the most watched uh, watched Super Bowl of all time. It's going to be more than possibly the 114 million that watched the uh, Patriots versus Seattle in Super Bowl 49. 
for the 2014 season. It could be more than the $212 million that watched Seattle versus Denver in New York City. In Super Bowl 48, which is uh, representing the 2013 season, the $111 million that watched Denver over Carolina in Super Bowl 59 for the uh, 2015, 49th, excuse me, for the uh, 2015 season. You got Patrick Mahomes versus Tom Brady. Again, going through a pandemic. So we're talking about local establishments. Won't have the same number of people gathered together to watch the game. Fewer parties, fewer get-togethers. Individuals are going to be watching the game at home. Yes, I know there's more ways to watch the game other than just your standard uh, sitting in front of the TV. I know that there's phones and iPads and iPods and all this other stuff. But for the most part, man, this is going to be a hell of a game. This is going to be a very intriguing game. KC is going to be attempting to become the first NFL franchise to repeat since the Patriots did it, I believe, what, 03, 04. So we're speaking about 16 years. They played before, if you're speaking about Kansas City and Tampa Bay this season, they played in Week 12. The game should have been called single cover Tyreek Hill. Not a good idea. Gate, if you're Tampa Bay. Kansas City won that game in Tampa 27-24, which is, for instance, the site at the, of the Super Bowl. So Kansas City already had beaten Tampa once at home, which so happens to be the game that they're going to be playing the Super Bowl at. But Mahomes went 37 of 49, 462 yards, had the touchdown, had touchdown passes of 75 yards, 44 yards, 20 yards, all to Tyreek Hill. Todd Bowles, you might want to double cover this guy who finished the game with 13 catches for 269 yards. Might want to go ahead and double-team this guy. In fact, Hill had seven catches for 203 yards and two touchdowns in the first quarter alone. Again, you might want to try double-teaming this guy. Kansas City led after the first quarter 17-0, then 20-7 at halftime. Look, the Buccaneers made it close in the fourth. Brady threw a couple of touchdown passes, 31 yards, 7 yards to Mike, Ad, uh, Mike Evans, tripping the lead to 27-24 with about 4-10 remaining. But then after that, Tampa Bay never got the ball back. Game over. Thanks for coming. Thanks for playing. The Kansas City Champions went ahead and won. During that game, Brady was 27-41, 345 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. And those two interceptions happened midway through the third quarter when he was being pressured off of Kansas City Blitzes. So kind of keep that in mind. If you take a look and remember... What happened when Brady was basically trying to give the game away to Green Bay this past weekend in the uh, NFC Championship game? The third interception came off of a off of pressure from a blitz. So just keep that in mind. Look, man, for this Super Bowl, if Tampa's going to win or they're going to improve their chances of winning than they did in Week Twelve, and they continue their revenge tour, they're, they're going to have that. They're going to have to do the balance, man. They're going to have to get better balance between the run and the passes. If you just take a look at the games that they've lost this season, it's been pass-heavy, run-nil, basically. The two regular season games that they've lost, that they lost in, in uh, against uh, New Orleans, they passed the ball 74 times and ran it 31 times, including, I believe they only ran it five times the second time, the second game against the uh, Saints. The win in the playoff game against the Saints, guess what? They ran the ball 35 times. They passed it 33 times. Interesting how a balanced offense improves your chances of winning. Against Chicago in the game that they lost because Tom Brady didn't know what down it was. 
He threw the ball 41 times. They ran it for 20. Against the Rams in the game that they lost, Tampa Bay threw the ball 48 times and ran it only 18. So if Tampa Bay wants to beat Kansas City, guess what they're going to have to do? They're going to have to take some of the responsibility off of Tom Brady. I'll say it before, I'll say it again. Even in even now, with him being the quarterback of the team that's going to the Super Bowl, you cannot, there's nobody, there's no quarterback in the league right now that's going to out-spectacular uh, Pat, Patrick Mahomes. Nobody. Nobody. Not Aaron Rodgers, not Russell Wilson, not Tom Brady, not Josh Allen. They've all come and tried and they've all failed. You're not going to beat Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City defending champions if you're going to have Tom Brady throwing the ball 45 to 50 times and only running the ball 15 to 18 times. Not going to be happening. You've got to control that clock. You've got to control the line of scrimmage. And you've got to limit the possessions that Kansas City has on offense. That's the way you're going to win. You are not going to win a shootout with the Kansas City team. You're just not. And, you know, for me... Everyone's saying Brady, 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 Brady. You know who the unsung hero in this playoff run for Tampa Bay is besides this defense? On offense, it's Leonard Fournette. He's provided balance to the offense. He's averaged four yards per carry on 48 carries. The run he had against Green Bay, 20 yards, where he did the spin move by Chuck Foreman and went into the end zone. That's, that's who should be the guy the offense should be looking to more and more. I'm not saying all of a sudden they become the Baltimore Ravens or the uh, Tennessee Titans. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But, but what I am saying is that there's got to be a little bit more balance. Especially, again, you're not going to be going toe-to-toe with Patrick Mahomes in this offense. And if you take a look at the successes I mentioned before, I told you about the discrepancy and run the pass when we are speaking about Tampa Bay and his losses this year mentioned before they played New Orleans in the they played New Orleans in the uh, divisional round 35 runs 33 passes they win the, the football game yeah Drew Brees was a shell of his former self and it took a couple of uh, key turnovers for Tampa Bay to um, get to the point to where they had the advantage to where they could win but yet still, you compare that contest to the two that they lost, and you can make the uh, argument, hey, first game of the season was against New Orleans. These guys didn't have training camp. These guys didn't have preseason games. These guys didn't have a chance to really get to know each other. So that might have been a bigger issue for Tampa Bay winning other than the run-pass discrepancy. The Sunday night game where they got blown out, hey, shit happens. Everybody has a bad day at the office. But the evidence is there. In their three playoff wins against Washington, New Orleans, and Green Bay, Tampa has thrown the football 109 times and ran it 88 times. Again, I'm not asking those guys to become the Baltimore Ravens. I'm not asking those guys to all of a sudden become three yards in a cloud of dust. But the average of 36 passes to 29 rushes in their three victories in the playoffs so far, that's what I'm talking about. That's what it needs. And I think Tampa should have the advantage on the offensive and defensive lines. As far as generating a pass rush is concerned, yeah, Kansas City, more of a pen, bend, but don't break type of defense. But if you're speaking about playmakers on that defensive side of the ball, I would have to give the edge to uh, Tampa Bay. So against Kansas City, the first time that they played, Tampa Bay sacked Mahomes twice in 49 pass attempts. Allowed Brady to be sacked only once in 48 pass attempts. I think that the offensive line play, I think that advantage goes to the Buccaneers, especially since um, uh, their starting left tackle for Kansas City uh, tore his Achilles, Eric Fisher. He's not going to be around to play 
in the game. So I think in terms of who's going to be able to establish that running game a little bit more, I think the edge goes to uh, Tampa Bay. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, man. Tampa Bay's going to have to earn and gain the respect from Kansas City running the ball. You can't have Brady just drop back, drop back, drop back. The Buccaneers were 28th in the league in rushing with yards per game, four yards per carry. Kansas City, average, a little bit below average against the run. They ranked 21st. They allowed 122 yards per game and four and a half yards per carry. You're going to have to get that, um, you're going to have to get that balance if you're a Tampa Bay. And really, if you take a look at previous Super Bowls, how do you slow down a prolific offense? These, these offenses that look like they can't be stopped. Well, for the game plan, or the game plan, the, the blueprint, the game plan for this to happen is you have ball control on offense and be aggressive and physical on defense. You take a look. Bill Belichick basically did that in Super Bowl twenty five against Buffalo. Remember Buffalo had the no-huddle offense and Jim Kelly and Andre Reid and Thurman Thomas and those guys were just running roughshod over everybody and they just beaten Oakland or were they the Oakland Raiders back then, the Los Angeles Raiders? I, I can't keep track of how many times the uh, Raiders organization has moved from Oakland to Los Angeles to Oakland to Los Angeles down to, uh, you know, I, I can't keep track. But basically they beat the Raiders 51-3, to poor Art Shell. They beat them in that game and just blew them out so it was like, my goodness, who's this offense is unstoppable. It's revolutionary. This, that, and the other. This, this. Well, Bill, Bill Belichick was like, okay, fine. What we're going to do is we're going to run the ball with O.J. Anderson. We're going to play ball control offense. We're going to have Jeff Hostetler not become uh, not become uh, Dan Marino-like. And we're going to punish, and we're going to hit, and we're going to be physical. And thank, good, thank goodness Scott Norwood couldn't hit a difficult field goal at the end. So not only did Belichick do that in Super Bowl twenty-five against a team that was considered to be a juggernaut on the offensive side of the football, he did it again in Super Bowl thirty-six against the greatest show on turf, the St. Louis Rams. As you remember how physical the Patriots defenders were, Ty Law and those guys, how physical they were against the um against the uh, against Torrey Holt and those guys, Isaac Bruce and those guys. How physical they were on the corners. And the fact that Mike Mark decided that he wasn't interested in running Marshall Falk or getting him involved, but yet still, that's how you be competitive. That's how you can stay competitive against these teams that are just putting up these god unbelievable offensive numbers. And if you take a look at the offense right now, I mean, is there anybody better that you can think of that's rolling right now, like the Kansas City defending champions? So ball control offense, being aggressive, physical on defense. It, look, Bill Belichick got Bill Belichick in Super Bowl 42, Tom Coughlin. That was the year that Tom Brady threw 50 touchdowns and Randy Moss had 25 touchdown receptions. And I think the Patriots set the record for most points scored in the season and they were blowing out everybody. Well, Michael Strahan and those guys were kind of like, no, every time that we get near Tom Brady, we're going to hit him and we're going to hit him hard and we're going to play physical and we're going to uh, have Eli Manning be a conductor or be a, a passenger and not a conductor on this train. And we're going to pull off the greatest upset in NFL history by beating the greatest team, at least the greatest regular season team in NFL history. So there's examples all over the place concerning these high-powered offenses who have the ability to get shut down by using the formula. You take a look at what the Los Angeles Raiders did against my Washington, then Joe Gibskins, 
in Super Bowl 18 for the uh, 1983 season, where they won 38-9. Yes, it sucked that Joe Theismann threw an interception to Jack Schmierick near the end of the first half, but yet and still, Allen, Marcus Allen ran roughshod over those guys, and they were physical with the uh, Washington football team, 38-9 for a team during the regular season. Washington, I believe up to that time, has set a record for most points scored in the season. I think Joe Theismann, Theismann was the MVP of the league. Riggins was still... At his uh, was still a devastating uh, runner. You had the Fun Bunch, or you had the um, you had Art Monk, and, and and those guys still out there. But um, you know, Oakland, Los Angeles, whatever you want to call them, found a way to mitigate that offense, and they won going away. The year that Dan Marino set all these records in nineteen eighty, what was it, nineteen eighty four, eighty six, eighty no, nineteen eighty four, something like that. Well, they got to. Uh, Palo Alto, San Francisco beat him, 38-16, 1984, I think it was, right? When Marino threw for like over 4,000 yards, when throwing for over 4,000 yards really meant something. Well, Miami lost 38-16. Seattle beat Denver, 43-8, the year that Peyton Manning set all type of touchdown passing records and everything. So if your Tampa Bay is doable, there's evidence there. And I think that the... Buccaneers have the personnel on defense to do it. Now it's just a question of, are they going to do it? And it's also a question of, are they going to be able to have the studs on offense go ahead and take out the game plan? At least when you're speaking about the chance for an upset, and it would be an upset if Tampa Bay went ahead and beat Kansas City, that as far as upsets are concerned, you have the best quarterback for that upset. I mean, the Raiders had Jim Plunkett at the time, San Francisco, Joe Montana. Okay, Joe, I really wouldn't call San Francisco over Miami an upset. But if you take a look at some of the greatest upsets, and you have Eli Manning over Tom Brady, you had then a raw and young Tom Brady. It's just the second year going up against the, uh, going up against Kurt Warner. I mean, at least in these teams, at least with these teams coming into the Super Bowl that have been underdogs, in terms of being an underdog with a quarterback, I think Tom Brady represents the best chance or the best quarterbacks of all the underdogs who have come into the Super Bowl or underdogs that had not a very good shot of winning the game. I don't I don't know what the line is on this game, but that's what you're going to have to do to win. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So we talked about, um, we talked about Tampa Bay. What about Kansas City? What about KC? I mean, how do you stop this team the way they're playing right now? Goodness grace alive, man. This is one of the this is one of the greatest offenses in NFL's history. And after only three seasons. I'm I'm gonna say that. I didn't say they were. I said they were one of the if you take a look. When you have Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, Eric Fisher, they made the Pro Bowl this season. Yeah, they might not have a super stud number two wide receiver. They might not have a, you know, a superstar all-star running back. But damn, man, that shows you how good that Patrick Mahomes is. That shows you how good the system that Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy has put together. That shows you how good these guys are. From 2018 to right now, come on, man. I'll put this offense up against anybody in the history of the league over the same time period and say, go ahead and do something about it. In 2018, as far as statistics and standings are concerned, Kansas City was first in the league in total yards per game at 425. 
Third in passing yardage at 309 yards. Rushing yards per game, they were 16th at 115. And points per game, they were first averaging 35 points per game. Then in 2019, sure, the offense took a step back as far as statistics are concerned from the previous year. But guess what? When you have Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill missing games because Patrick Mahomes wants to do a quarterback sneak and hurt his kneecap and Tyreek Hill missed some time, of course you're going to go ahead and not be as uh, effective or not be as explosive as you were in 2018. But the team still finished uh, ranked fifth in total points and sixth in total yards. So it wasn't like they fell off the map. And oh, by the way, they went in and won the Super Bowl. And so this season, they finished sixth in points per game, third in total yards, second in passing yards. These guys were awesome. So if you take a look at all the great offenses during that time, because I, I said it before, I, I really do mean this. For a three-year span, and, and maybe I'm projecting that on top of the three-year span, that there's going to be another two to three years where Kansas City is going to be so far, ahead, so far ahead of everybody else that the Buffalo Bills and, well, we don't know what's going to be happening with the Green Bay Packers, but did Aaron Rodgers just play the best, final best year of his season? Can Aaron Rodgers go any higher than he played this season. I'm trying to take a look at some of the prolific offenses this year moving forward. Who's going to be able to challenge Kansas City as far as offense is concerned? Who's going to be able to challenge Patrick Mahomes as a quarterback in terms of the superstars of the league is concerned? Who's going to be able to do that? So so maybe I'm so bullish on me saying that this is the greatest, one of the greatest, if not the greatest offenses that we've seen in a long time based on the standard it's based on the uh, period of time. Maybe I'm projecting 2018 to 2024 or something like that. So you take a look at other great offenses. Hey, Pittsburgh from about 1974 to 79. Franco Harris, Rocky Blyer, Lynn Swan, John Stallworth, Terry Bradshaw. 1982, where Dwight Clark made the catch over Everson Walls in the uh, back of the end zone in San Francisco to maybe the mid-90s, maybe plateaued with Steve Young winning his first championship and having the monkey being taken off his back. But if you take a look at that dynasty of offensive proficiency and you take a look at players like Joe Montana and Steve Young and Roger Craig and Brent Jones and John Taylor, Ricky Waters. Um, oh, yeah, some guy. What was his name? The wide receiver from Mississippi Valley State. Ah, uh, Ah, yeah, 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 Jerry, Jerry, oatmeal, Jerry, what was that, what's that food? Oh, yeah, Jerry Rice, yeah, yeah, he was pretty good, wasn't he? So you have that collection of talent, that's going to rival anybody if you're speaking about greatest offenses, and I'm, I'm speaking about greatest offenses over a period of time, I'm not just talking about a one and done or a two and done type of deal, I'm talking about when I say Kansas City already has the opportunity to have one of the greatest, if not the greatest offense in the modern day NFL. Again, I'm projecting, but I'm also not just saying 2018, 2019, and then that's it, or just maybe a year or two. I'm projecting and comparing the Kansas City offense to these offensive juggernauts that were incredible, that were dominant over a period of time of four or five seasons. For instance, the Indianapolis Colts. They were doing their thing from about 2001 to 2010. Having Peyton Manning there, yeah, that'll work. Peyton Manning, Marshall Falk, he was traded Miami. I mean, he was traded, and um, Bill Polian selected Ed- Edron James, Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, Dallas Clark, 
I mean, these are all the guys. These are all the teams. These are all the offenses. I'm saying that, you know what? Yeah, I'll put Patrick Mahomes with Joe Montana. Yeah, I'll put Patrick Mahomes with Steve Young. Yeah, I'll put Patrick Mahomes with Peyton Manning. Yeah, I'll put Patrick Mahomes with Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, I'll put him up with these with with these goats, with these uh, uh, Hall of Famers, with these legends already. Because I believe in Patrick Mahomes, and when everything is all said and done in the year 2024, 2025, 2026, I do believe that Patrick Mahomes is going to be rewriting records and setting standards that, shit, man, I might have to live till I'm like in my mid-70s for someone to come close to the way this guy is going right now. And hey, man, you're one bad injury away from all of this being null and void. But still, the way Patrick Mahomes is playing, the way this offense is set, the way this offense is going, and again, you have the best tight end in the game in, in Travis Kelsey. You have the best, one of the best wide receivers in the game in uh, Tyreek Hill. Hey, man, do you see this machine slowing down anytime soon? It's only going to get better, right? I mean, they need to find themselves a number. Could you imagine this team with a decent number two receiver? Could you imagine if Tyreek Hill had a um, number two receiver like Michael Irvin had with uh, Alvin Harper? Could you imagine if this team had a John Taylor to go alongside uh, a, a Tyreek Hill type? Could you imagine how potent this offense would be? Could you imagine how incredible this offense could be? And it's already at that level. So my, my, my deal is that everything is based on the unbelievable greatness of Patrick Mahomes. Playing at a higher level of domination than any QB over the last 10 or 15 years. I really, we, Peyton Manning was unbelievable. Peyton Manning was incredible. Peyton Manning, I think with Brady doing a thing, and we've had this young group of uh, quarterbacks coming in, and the way that they played, and the way the, the league is moving in a different direction, so the classic pocket passer is becoming more extinct every single season. But sometimes, I think we're kind of forgetting, and you know, Manning's been away from the game for a few years, but when Manning was rolling with uh, with the Colts, when he was in his physical prime, I think we forget how absolutely dominating and absolutely great, how great he was. But with Indianapolis, how many championships did he win? One. With Mahomes, he's already won one. He's playing for another not this Sunday, but the upcoming, but the, the next Sunday after that. And he has just begun this journey. Patrick Mahomes hasn't had a bad year yet. When Peyton Manning came into the league, I think he threw like 28, in, 28 interceptions. And he, used to, he would say, hey, look, you know, when I first came into the league and first started playing quarterback, my thing was, you know what? I don't care if Marvin Harrison had the entire team on him. I'm going to throw him the football because I had so little confidence in myself to read and do all these other things. It was just Marvin Harrison, Marvin Harrison, Marvin Harrison. That's one of the reasons why Peyton Manning threw so many interceptions that he did. We we haven't had, we haven't seen Patrick Mahomes go through anything like that. Patrick Mahomes hit the ground running like he was a eight-time pro bowler. That he, like, he had already won a couple of MVPs and he was like 31 years old. Already his ninth year into the league. That's the type of football that he was playing like in his initial season as a starting quarterback. 
So this guy still has room to grow. This guy still has room to get better. What's it going to be like? So yeah, yeah. Tom Brady, Joe Montana, Peyton Manning, Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put Patrick Mahomes right there. After three years? Yes, after three fucking years. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Joe Montana, 4-0 in the Super Bowl. MVPs, Tom Brady, going for a seventh, MV, uh, seventh Super Bowl uh, championship. Peyton Manning, setting records, two-time Super Bowl champion. Third fucking year, Wendell. You're going to put Patrick Mahomes in there with those guys. Are you fucking out of your mind? Are you that stupid? I give you my reasons. I'm banking. This is a this is a stock that I'm investing in that's going to continue to continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. The legend of Patrick Mahomes. That's what it's all about, man. And yeah, right now I do put Patrick Mahomes in terms of the level of domination. Look, Peyton Manning never dominated the NFL like this. Tom Brady, Joe Montana, Steve Young. These guys never dominated the league like this. You might have had teams, you might have had quarterbacks for maybe one year outdo everybody else, but then they came back down to earth. And I'm not just talking about statistics. I'm just talking about impact. Nobody has been like this, or it's been a long time since someone has been playing the game at this level, like Patrick Mahomes. It is unbelievable. It is thrilling to watch this guy play. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. As I'm recording this podcast on a beautiful day out here in the northwest section of Las Vegas, Nevada. Watching my chopped on the uh, Food Network. Clippers and the uh, Hawks are going to be playing later on tonight. Might catch the uh, replay of that, but I've been watching a lot of basketball. Mentioned before, they had the uh, league pass, the free preview. So I had an opportunity to watch uh, the Cavs and the Nets and some other teams. And finally had an opportunity to watch my Washington Wizards against the San Antonio Spurs. And hadn't had the opportunity to too much to uh, track the Los Angeles Lakers in terms of their East Coast swing or their mid Midwest swing so far, but, you know, they blew out Chicago, uh, blew out Cleveland, so I'll pick them up a little bit later on. LeBron's still playing great. Guy's, what, 30-something years old? Not 32. The guy is closer to 40 than he is 32, and he's playing as well as he's playing, so, man, it's incredible. But, uh, you know, not right now. I mean, still a little bit bummed that Georgetown isn't playing, but they'll be back to their losing ways 
uh, Saturday against Providence. I've been watching a lot of really good basketball, so watching Georgetown play will remind me what bad basketball is like. So, you know, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, love my Hoyas. Love, love, love my Hoyas. They'll get it turned around. They will get it turned around, hopefully, next season. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, because this season they're terrible. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad, I still love them. I'm, <laughs> I'm your host, so glad that you could be with us. All right, the championship games. Let's start with the NFC, shall we? Green Bay losing to Tampa Bay 31-26. to Temperature at the start of the game was 28 degrees, so I was like, interesting. Very interesting, but Tampa came out was like, fuck the wind, fuck all that bullshit. Completed four of their third down convergence, including a third down of, did I say virgins or convergence? Completed four third down conversions, including a third and 15 to Chris Godwin on the drive for the touchdown. Mike Emmons with a beautiful pass from Brady. It was like, all right, we got ourselves a game here. Then Green Bay responded with a seven play drive that went 90 yards in less than four minutes. Of course, the key play of that drive was a 23-yard pass from Rodgers to Alan Lazard on 3rd and 15 at the Packers' 5-yard line. That led to a 50-yard pass at the beginning of the second quarter to uh, Marquise Valdez-Scantling to tie the game at 7. And you thought, see, in situations like this, you're always looking for momentum changes, the ties turning type of thing. So, yeah, 3rd and 15, the um, Buccaneers uh, uh, you know, get the first down on that. Come down to score, opening kickoff, comes down to score. Interesting, interesting. But then Green Bay responds. Third and 15, 23-yard pass from the five-yard line. If they don't make it, they get to kick the ball. Tampa Bay had a chance to go up another score. It could get interesting, but no. Instead, Green Bay responds. So how is Tampa Bay going to respond to that? So it was one of it was one of those type of games. So Again, after the score, Tampa Bay, again, responded with a TD run by Leonard Fournette, making 14-7 late in the second quarter. Brady threw a bad jump ball pass to Godwin for 52 yards on third down after dropping a pass to play before. So, big play right there. Again, it was one of the one of the themes of the game, this NFC Championship game for Green Bay, which was really poor uh, uh, secondary play. So in the first half, the Buccaneers receivers dropped about three passes in the first 18 minutes of the game. So that was something to where you might want to take a look at. You know, Mike Evans got one at a couple of drop passes, but he made the 52-yard reception. So all all's well that ends well in that situation. And and then, because we're all going to be speaking, again, we're all talking about, I can't believe it, bad call by LaFleur. You should have gone for it, this, that, and the other. And for those who want to put the blame on him or say that's the reason why Green Bay lost the game, no, 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 no. One play in that situation does not say or is not the determining factor in terms of if you win the football game or not. No, no, the miss, there's a missed opportunity way before any of that bullshit happened. Missed opportunity for the Packers. They were down in the red zone. They had three opportunities. From inside to 10 to score a touchdown to tie the game. Instead, Devontae Adams missed an opportunity to make a great catch off of a bad low throw by Rodgers on the left side of the end zone. Then on third down, Rodgers missed Adams again in the back of the end zone. The toe tap couldn't come down in bounds. So instead of tying the game 
having three opportunities on a Green Bay offense that normally is pretty potent from inside the red zone, instead of tying it up at 14 all, the kick a field goal, 14-10, missed opportunity, leaving four points on the board. Comes down to the fact that those were four pretty big points. And you take a look, Devontae Adams was visibly frustrated on the sidelines. You saw after the series was over, he kind of threw his helmet down, knew the frustration because, yeah, he had an opportunity to make not one, but two uh, plays. And you're talking about an NFC Championship game. You're talking about an opportunity to go to the Pro Bowl. Hey, man, that's when you need to make big plays. That's when you need to make hard plays. That first down catch in the end zone, it wasn't easy. It wasn't his fault, entirely his fault. It would have been a great catch if he would have made it. But guess what, man? Great players make great catches on a consistent basis. In those situations, you want to be known consistently as a great player. Then in that situation, you make the, you make the uh, catch. He didn't. They settled for a field goal. Four points left on the board. Key play number two of the game. After Tampa Bay intercepted the ball, they put the ball on the 49-yard line with 34 seconds left to go in a half. Guess what? Brady completed a six-yard pass to Fournette on fourth down. Another fourth down conversion with 13 seconds left, putting the ball at the Green Bay 39. And then going back to the theme where the Green Bay secondary, atrocious, beyond atrocious, what did Matt LaFleur have to do with a situation where Scotty Miller catches a 39-yard touchdown pass and Tom Brady with one second left to go in a half to make it 21-10? So it's bad enough that you left four points on the board by not converting in the red zone when you had three chances. Instead of going 14-14, you make it 14-10. So instead of going into the half and getting the ball back, only being down by four, one score, one touchdown from going ahead, with one second left, you allow that to happen? You allow man-to-man coverage? I mean, damn, that play looked similar to the miracle at the Met between the Las Vegas Raiders and the New York Jets. Somewhere Greg Williamson is feeling a little vindicated. How do you like me now, bitches? That's what Greg Williams is saying. So, again, everybody points to the floor. Everybody points to that 31-23 decision to kick a field goal with 206 left to go in the game. And that's the reason the LaFleur choked and all this other stuff. No! There were plenty of plays left on the field that were just as important in terms of the uh, Packers winning or losing that football game. And the game, you took a look at the scoreboard, 21 to 10. And if you're the Packers, you have to be disheartened because in a matter of, what, five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes of playing time, you had an opportunity to tie the score you didn't. And then you gave up uh, seven points. That's an 11-point swing. So both teams at the half, you take a look. Pretty even. Both teams combined to go 13 to 16 on third downs. Teams had 10 first downs each. Tampa Bay, yeah, they led as far as total yards are concerned, but that was 235 to 189. So that's not something where you can point to domination, or that's that's not something where there's a, a there's evidence that one team is clearly better than the other. It was an evenly played first half, except for a couple of mistakes by the Packers. Now, I wouldn't even say mistakes. One mistake with the Miller catch at the end of the half, but the inability to take advantage of being in the red zone. They didn't get it done. So 21 to 10, you're looking at instead of a much more, much closer score. So key play of the game number two, before people want to sit there and start yelling and screaming at Matt LaFleur and calling him, in, calling him the culprit of why they lost the game. Beginning of the third quarter, Aaron Jones, one of the better all-around running backs in the game, he fumbled. 
And Tampa Bay recovered and returned it inside the hit zone, uh, the uh, red zone. And then Brady threw a short TD pass to Cameron Brake to make it 28-10 with 13 minutes to go in the third quarter. Fumbling? Come on, man. You can't do that bullshit. Fumbling in that situation? And then you put the uh, defense in a situation where it's no win because of the return on the fumble puts it inside the red zone? What did Matt LaFleur have to do with that? How are we going to blame Matt LaFleur for that? Had nothing to do with Matt LaFleur. So luckily for Green Bay, because at that point it's like 28 to 10, you're like, okay, well, I mean, that's, you still had 13 minutes left and the Packers were at home and you had the, uh, you had the MVP, Aaron Rodgers, and this, that, and the other. So, I mean, basically you almost had to completely abandon the running game at this point because you were down by three scores. But, uh, you know, in a situation like this, okay, I'm, I'm still not giving, I'm still not, completely giving up hope because you got Aaron Rodgers. But little did I know, little did you know, little did your friends know, little did your husband know, little did your kids know that Tom Brady was going to do his very best to give Green Bay the opportunity to win after. They uh, went ahead 28-10 to with Green Bay trailing 28-17 with eight minutes left to go in the third quarter. Brady threw in a double coverage on the right side line looking for uh, Mike Evans. That was intercepted. That was the first interception. Green Bay scored off that turnover to make it 28-23 near the end of the third quarter. And a two-point conversion. Oh, he should have had that son of a bitch. Something St. Brown. St. Thomas St. Brown, whatever that kid's name is. Oh, had it right in his hand, and they were talking about, well, it was tipped, it was tipped. No, 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 no. There ain't no, like, reason to be like, yeah, it was tipped, so that's the reason. No, man, he had to have that, he had to have that score. He had to have that catch. Unacceptable, inexcusable. Brady gives you the opportunity, you respond by going down and scoring after being down 28-10. So the, the momentum starts to build for Green Bay after that happens, after you go down the score. Then Brady's like, hey, you know what, fellas, here's an interception. Go for it. They take it down the score again. Now, it's like we're rolling, we're moving, we're grooving, we're doing things. Drop pass in the end zone. Two-point two conversion you should have had. 28-23 near the end of the third quarter. Rodgers went 8 of 9 for 51 yards on the scoring drive, completing seven of his first passes So on that drive. So it's like, all right, now we're moving. Now we're grooving. Now we've got a little, now we've got a mojo back going into the fourth quarter. Now we're taking a look at it. It's a uh, touchdown away from uh, going ahead. So we've got new life. Thanks, Tom. We appreciate that. Then on the next possession for Tampa Bay on the offensive side, Brady throws his second interception near the goal line. So just as, just when you thought that the Buccaneers were going to respond with at least an opportunity to kick a pretty makeable field goal, the way they were rolling at the very least, Brady throws an interception. He throws an interception. Luckily, Tampa Bay holds the Packers three and out. Whew. All right, calamity averted. Tampa Bay gets the ball back again. Brady throws another goddamn interception. What the fuck? Doing interception under pressure from, from a blitz. But guess what? Green Bay did nothing with it. Another three and out. So if you take a look at the opportunities missed again by the Green Bay Packers, Brady gave them three opportunities to do something. They only cashed in one time. Three outs. They didn't even give the defense a chance to rest a little bit, the offense for Green Bay. Credit Todd Bowles and the Tampa Bay defense. 
big big plays. Big plays. I mean, heck, even if they go down and score two field goals, that would give that would give Green Bay the lead. And that would get the momentum continue to go. But when you're stopped like that, I believe one of the times uh, Rodgers, I think on each one of the uh, possessions after the interceptions, Rodgers was sacked. Momentum ended. So, look, the biggest talking point of the game, Tampa Bay leading 31-23, 4.42 left to go. All right, Green Bay get the ball. They move the ball down the field. They move it to the Buccaneers' eight-yard line. And then after three straight incomplete passes, which had the Packers facing fourth down and goal from the eight, not the one, not the two, not the three, enough to where the Packers could put in a dying defense and put everybody at the goal line and say, there you go, try to score now. So with a situation that was facing Green Bay, LaFleur was like, you know what, let's go ahead and kick the field goal to get within five with 2.05 left to go in the game. So you know what, we kick a field goal, 31-26, we hold them, we go down and score, we win the game. We don't even have to worry about overtime or anything like that. So Green Bay had their opportunity. People yelling, screaming, can't believe LaFleur, this, that, and the other. Green Bay still had the opportunity to get off the field as far as defense is concerned. Third down and four from the Tampa Bay 37 with a minute 46 left to go out of shotgun formation. Brady throws an incomplete pass, but the pass interference was called against the secondary once again. That basically ended the uh, contest. That basically ended the game. Did I like the pass interference call? <laughs> but wait, this is... This is the bullshit that kind of that kind of comes from this. There were so many plays, and you heard throughout the game, uh, Troy Aikman and, and, and Joe Buck were speaking about, you know, the, ref, the referees are letting them play, they're letting them play, they're letting them play. That pass was you can make you can make the call on that play that that pass was uncatchable. You could, but you could also see where it was pass interference. So it was a matter of, I think either way, either way, I don't think it was going to be, it was egregious. Like if they didn't call pass interference, I don't think that it was something where people would have been talking about. Like, I can't believe that they got robbed. It wasn't a championship type of call where, you know, when it was the um, Los Angeles Rams versus the New Orleans Saints and that non-call on that pass interference. It wasn't that egregious. I don't know anything in playoff history in recent years with that egregious, but I think any way you go, I could have lived with it. So they call pass interference. I'm not hooting and hollering and screaming, and I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. This is bullshit. How can they do this? How can they do that? This, that, and the other. And if they wouldn't have called pass interference, I wouldn't have been jumping out of my seat going, I can't believe it. This is bullshit. This, that, and the other. Because, again, the way that they were calling the game, you could have easily said that, yeah, there was some holding there, but the pass was, I believe, deemed to be uncatchable. But... They called it pass interference, and that was the ball game. That pass interference call for Green Bay, if you're really a, a diehard Green Bay fan, for me, that was worse than Matt LaFleur not going for it on fourth down. If you really, really thought that the way the game was being called, now at a minute 30, 46 left to go in a situation like this, third down, now all of a sudden you're going to go by the book? Now all of a sudden you're going to call that when you haven't been calling something similar to that all game long? Shit, damn fuck, are you kidding me? Again, not egregious. Again, not, I'm going to, you know, if you're a Green Bay fan, I'm going to boycott the NFL and, you know, have a conniption and all that kind of stuff. But it was tough. It was tough to take because you could, it wasn't like also, 
it wasn't like immediate. As soon as like the ball was over the head, it was kind of like, was it, was it, was it? Yeah. It wasn't like over his head flag. It wasn't like so immediate. Really, you could have called the you could have called the the, the the secondary guy for Green. You could have called him for holding, more than anything, more than just pass interference. But I digress. So, look, it's, it's easy to point and sit there and say, "Oh, you know, the reason why Green Bay lost that's the main reason why they lost." I can't believe it. Man, even if they don't, and, and, the, and the argument is, look, man, even if they don't make it on fourth down, you pin Tampa at their own eight yard line. They still need a touchdown to win, even if they went ahead and kicked it. Well, they kicked the field goal, made the field goal, so big fucking deal. You still need a you still need a touchdown if you get the ball back anyway. So why don't you try to uh, score with the ball right now? You have Aaron Rodgers, the MVP of the league. You have a team in Green Bay that has been proficient at in the red zone so far this season. Why in the hell are you kicking a field goal? This is ridiculous. This is bullshit. Again, going for the field goal was not the reason why they lost. I know it's tough to hear. I know you might not want to hear that, but that's not the reason why they lost. Missed opportunities were the reasons. Look, the Packers had the best, again, one of the best NFL uh, NFL red zone offenses this season. They scored twice and settled for field goals in the first half when they had first and goal. Again, instead of early back in the uh, second quarter or late in the second quarter where they had the ball <clears throat> well, excuse me, where they had the ball in the end zone or near the uh, near the end zone, inside the 20, inside the 10. What happened? Devontae Adams couldn't make a spectacular catch, and Rodgers missed him. Again, Tom Brady throws three interceptions in a row. You only come away with five, well, with uh, six points. And on the other two <clears throat> possessions after the uh, interceptions, you don't do anything. You don't change the field. You don't swing the momentum. You don't do anything. So to just zero in and narrow in on a decision that was made. And then again, 31-26. A minute 47 left to go. Enough timeouts that if you made a stop, and with Tampa throwing the football, if you would have made a stop, that would have given you an extra 25-30 seconds off a minute 47. So you would have had the ball back, decent field position, with the MVP of the league at quarterback, multiple timeouts in your pocket with the ability to go down and score. To win the game. Not just, and if they score a touchdown, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean anything if they don't make the two point conversion. Because remember, they were down by eight, not six, not seven. So let, let's kind of stop with the Matt LaFleur lost the game. Matt LaFleur was playing scared. No, Matt LaFleur was using some common sense. Put him really put him in the position to win. Defense couldn't get it done. Secondary couldn't get it done. So this nonsense about even if the um, even if the Buccaneers didn't score on fourth down from the eight, and you give Tampa Bay the ball back, what you're you're going on the assumption then that Green Bay was going to stop these guys on three downs. Well, they didn't stop them when they got the ball back. So what makes you think that they were going to be able to stop them uh, um, regardless of where they were positioned on the field? Not like they were at the two or the one yard line with their options being limited. So I I, 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 I mean, it's to me, it's just we're, we're assuming a lot of things here. 
when we're speaking about LaFleur blowing the game for the Buccaneers, or excuse me, for the uh, uh, Green Bay Packers, or LaFleur with the reason why the Packers lost, and all of this, all of this animus, and as David Stern would say, the palaver that's going toward, um, that's going toward Matt LaFleur is, is unwarranted. Because you're going on the assumption that they were going to score on fourth down, the touchdown, then they were going to get the two-point conversion, then they were going to stop Tom Brady, then they were going to get the ball back, and then they were going to go down and kick a field goal and win the game. That, that's what you're assuming. Well, how can you assume all those things if you've been watching this game? Green Bay wasn't automatic inside the uh, red zone, inside the 10-yard line. Their secondary was porous. So, so I don't, I don't know anything in terms of they would have to do all these things that all of these things that they would have to do: score, two point conversion, hold on defense, get the ball back, go down, score again. I, I, I don't know what evidence in the game that you had to where Lafleur, you know, that the floor was like, nah, fuck all that shit. Let me go ahead and kick a field goal. Again, if that was the case, if you're rationalizing that, score on fourth down from the eight yard line. Two-point conversion, tight to game, stop them on uh, on uh, defense, get the ball back, score. Well, then, if that's the case, why don't they just kick the field goal, make it 31-26, they kick off, they hold the uh, Buccaneers to three and out, they get the ball back, and then they go down and score and win the game. We don't even have to worry about and, yeah, So we don't even have to worry about that. So, in all essence, Green Bay would have to score three times. They would have to score the touchdown. They would have to convert on a two-point conversion, and then they would have to kick a field goal, either in regulation or maybe going into overtime. And if they did go into overtime, they're going on the assumption then that either they were going to stop Tampa, get the ball back, score, or they were going to win the coin toss, get the ball, score, touchdown, and win. I mean, there's just too many unrealistic like scenarios that you're putting out there to where it's like, I cannot believe Matt LaFleur did that. Again, if it was fourth and goal in that situation, 206 left, 31-23, Tampa in the lead, and Green Bay had the ball at the Tampa two-yard line, had the ball at the Tampa Bay one-yard line, even at the three-yard line, I, I can see that. Where, you know, you don't know, you have the option to either throw the ball, run the ball, slant, jump ball, something. To where Green Bay just, where Tampa Bay just can't come out in a dime defense or have a bunch of, uh, of, uh, secondary guys out there. But the way Green Bay was looking in the red zone throughout the game, LaFleur did the right thing. And it's easy to second guess when something doesn't go right. And it's easy just to concentrate on that. What happens if, just just playing the what if game, because if you want to blame the, you want to blame LaFleur because all of your what ifs were going to be, you know, pretty much a done deal. Well, what if, there's no pass interference on that play. And Green Bay gets the ball. And they come down and score and win, wins the game. All of a sudden now, Matt LaFleur is a fucking genius. Matt LaFleur has stones. Matt LaFleur, I tell you, this guy, this, that, and the other, rolling the dice. Riverboat LaFleur. All of those type of things. It's the same shit where we can even go back to the defending champion of Kansas City football team. And on that fourth down, you have a fucking backup quarterback taking a shotgun snap and throwing it on fourth down with the game on the line near midfield. What happens if Chad Henney doesn't complete that pass and then Cleveland comes down to scores? 
All of a sudden now Andy Reid's an idiot. All of a sudden now Andy Reid causes them the game. All of a sudden now Andy Reid has, Reid has to hang his head in shame and people start bringing up the, the choke job that he had when he was the coach of Philadelphia. No, but because it was uh, because it was completed, because the pass was completed, the play was executed correctly. Well, Andy Reid stone. This guy's got you know this guy's got stones. And what a guy and what a coach. And he believes in this team and the chemistry and the togetherness and the, the bond led them to this and that and the other. It's like, come on, man, come on, come on. I, I, again, I'm not going to sit here and just shout and scream and yell at Matt Lafleur for that play. Again, if he did a Pete Carroll in the in the Super Bowl, eh. <laughs> you sit there and go, you know, bad call, bad call. But in a game like this, in a decision like this, I can't sit there and, and roast the guy. And again, Green Bay had plenty of opportunity to put themselves in a much better position to win the football game. They didn't do it. The defense couldn't get stops when they needed to. The offense couldn't maintain the momentum when they had it. They couldn't take advantage of opportunities that Tom Brady gave them in the third and fourth quarter. They couldn't capitalize in the red zone when they had the opportunities. The fumbles, the turnovers, the bad defensive assignment at the end of the first half, a guy scoring a 39-yard touchdown pass with uh, one second left, when you know that's the only place that he can go. You're going to blame Lat LaFleur for not going for it on fourth down as the main reason or the, or the, the, the main culprit. Or the star of the new movie, this is the reason why Green Bay's not going to the Super Bowl this season? No. No, I'm not I'm not buying that. Matt LaFleur, who, by the way, is a pretty damn good coach if you take a look at the record. If you take a, take a look at what he's did, done his first two years in Green Bay where he's made it to the NFC Championship games. And he's gotten the best out of Aaron Rodgers in his two years of them working together. And he's developed and brought along someone like a um, Devontae Adams and has complimented uh, Adams a little bit with the receivers that they've gotten, the number two receivers, slot receivers, and such like that. Matt LaFleur has done a fantastic job. I think even those who just were just irate beyond belief about the decision would be smart enough to realize that Matt LaFleur is the guy that Green Bay wants as their head coach. So even if you want to go by the even if you want to die on that hill of Matt LaFleur choked the game, lost the game, reason why this, that, and the other, he's the main guy, this, that, and the other. Even those who want to uh, go ahead and sing that tune would have to agree that Matt that uh, Matt LaFleur is the coach, is the right coach for the Green Bay Packers, and you don't want him going anywhere. So, tough loss for the Packers, man. Tough loss for Green Bay. But to blame Matt LaFleur on that, to blame the decision that Matt LaFleur made, that would definitely be the wrong, wrong decision.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Another beautiful day. Another beautiful day to be living, to be breathing, to be giving thanks. Hey, man, get up right now. Hold on. Put myself put myself on pause. Go ahead and pause real quick. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, uh, wherever you're going, whether it's a call, whether she's in the other room, whether he's downstairs, whatever, man. I want you to tell your better half. I want you to tell your soulmate that you love him. You know, fuck it. Just you love him. No, no reason. I ain't asking for something. You know, none of that nonsense. Just say I love you. That's all. You know, I love you. I cherish you. You're my best friend. You're this, that, and the other. I just want you to know. Because sometimes, man, there's somebody right now, as I speak, as I'm recording, as you're listening, no matter whether it's noon, morning, night, whatever, daybreak, dawn, whatever, there's someone right now who's like, are you fucking serious? No one loves me, man. I'm, I'm all alone. And seriously, I'm all alone. There's someone right now sitting in a prison cell. There's someone right now sitting on death row that has been on death row for 10, 15 years. There's someone right now sitting in a prison cell in a prison that has been there for 20, 25, 30 years who was there because of no fault of their own. They were there because of negligence. They were there because of error. They were there for whatever reason they're on death row. Whatever whatever the reason reason why they spent decades and decades in prison. They're innocent people. There's innocent men and women right now who are waiting to be executed for a crime that they didn't commit. They're paying their debt to society for a crime that they didn't commit. And because of their gender, because of their skin color, because of their financial reasons, they, that's, you know, that's the way it is. So the fact that you have the opportunity to um, breathe fresh air, the opportunity to be with your family, to be with your loved ones, to do what you want to do, to be able to wake up in the morning, to be a free man, all those type of things, man, you know, be thankful. Because no matter how bad you feel, there's always someone worse. There's someone right now who is suffering. There's someone right now in constant pain right now because of fibromyalgia. There was someone right now who is battling a horrible disease in which every single minute, every single second of their lives, they're in pain. People have committing suicide, ending their lives in horrible ways because they would rather deal with the momentary trauma to end their life, to end their pain, to end their suffering, than to go on another minute, to go on another second like this. So man, be thankful, be blessed for what you have, even if it ain't much, because there's millions of people out there who have it much worse than you are, than you have it. So there you go. There you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. That's my Hallmark card for today. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening in the uh, championship games, NFC, AFC. So spoke about the uh, NFC championship game, defendant Matt LaFleur. I, 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 under, I understand the argument, but I just think a lot of the outrage and I can't believe this and this, that, and the other, it's just going a little bit overboard. Again, I think it's we're, we're trying to search for something to talk about other than that day, Tampa Bay was the better team. Moving on. There's got to be some discussion point 
There's got to be something to where we can yell and scream and blame somebody. And it just happened. The lowest hanging fruit is Matt LaFleur's decision to kick a field goal with 2.05 left to go in the fourth quarter with his team down by eight instead of going for it on fourth down with the ball on the Packers or on the Buccaneers eight yard line. So that's my deal with that. So, all right. What are we going to do about Aaron Rodgers, though? What do you think? He was pretty despondent, wasn't he? After the uh, game. Understandably, he's now one of four in conference championship games. And uh, I don't know what to make of his comments, what he said after the game, as part of an answer about how different the team can look next season and what the 2020 campaign meant to him. Now there's people talking about, hey, you know, Rodgers is very... uh, uh, you know, he, he's very calculating and this, that, and the other. So everything he says, it's like LeBron James, passive-aggressive type. You know, you have to kind of read between the lines and what he's saying. And believe me, he's very calculating, and he's not going to say anything. He knows what he's saying, and he knows the impact his words are going to have. And he knows, you know, what the reaction is going to be, and that's exactly what he wants, and that's exactly what he's aiming for. So believe me, when he was sitting up there talking about the Packers have a lot of guys – Futures that are uncertain, myself included. That's what's sad about it. Most of us, most getting up, getting this far. Obviously, it's going to be at, it's going to be an end at some point, whether we make it past this one or not. But just the uncertainties, tough and final and the finality of it all. Yeah, all of that stuff might be, you know, this words of a broken man, of a heartbroken man who's right now seeing it in the moment and he's letting his emotions talk instead of his uh, brain and all of this kind of stuff. There's a lot of folks out there inside football scouts and media folks who cover the team and Aaron Rodgers and all this kind of stuff are sitting there going, no, 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 no. Every word that man said has a meaning. Every word, he wrote that stuff down. He memorized that before the game started. He wrote that shit down and he memorized it just in case. Just in case, as Mike Florio said, there's a 50-50 chance you win or you lose. So in a 50% chance that you lose, Aaron Aaron Rodgers was going to make sure that he got his point across. So that shit was off casting central. All right. I don't know. I don't know. And then, you know, this past Wednesday, what he said about his future with the Packers. Quote, I'm always just trying to stay present, especially this year as much as anything, and enjoy the moments. I hope there's more opportunities, but I don't know. I mean, I really don't. That stuff is out of my control. The future is a beautiful mystery, I think. What the fuck did that mean? <laughs> I mean, it's like, all right, man. Well, you know, I, it, uh, whatever, man, whatever. Look, I, Rogers had his best statistical year. At age 37 in the 15th year, you're speaking about 4,300 yards, 48 touchdowns, five interceptions in the regular season. He's going to win this, what, second or third MVP. Where, where's he going to go? What, what are we What are we talking about here? Is he still butthurt about the um, fact that they drafted Jordan Love or they didn't give him any help? Why is it that now he's sore? Now, now maybe he's been upset and, and this has been brewing all season long. I don't know. But did you hear him brooding and pouting and talking about a, a beautiful journey and a mystery and a mystery within a riddle within a riddle within a mystery when the Packers were winning games and Devontae Adams was breaking records and Lazard was playing well and Scantling was playing well and Aaron Jones was playing well and Jamal Williams was playing well in the offensive line and that one time they were considered the most complete team in the NFL by yours truly. Like, that means anything, right? But, I mean, the thing is that when the... 
Packers were rolling. None of this stuff was coming out in terms of, oh boy, oh boy. You know, so if the Packers would have won the championship, if they would have won the Super Bowl, would any of this stuff even become a discussion? Because you lose a tight game in the NFC Championship, all of a sudden now we have to be worried about Aaron Rodgers saying, you know, screw it, I'm out of here. Because the Green Bay Packers, they ain't sending him nowhere. This ain't New England Tom Brady. This ain't Green Bay Brett Favre. This ain't San Francisco Joe Montana. This ain't not one of them situations. This ain't Houston Warren Moon or Minnesota Warren Moon. This is not one of those situations at all. Green Bay wants Aaron Rodgers back under any means necessary. They want that man back and playing for the Green Bay Packers. And they would be absolute fools beyond belief to think anything different. Like, oh yeah, well, you know, Aaron Rodgers got us this far, but to finally get us over the hump, it's Jordan Love time. That's, you know, that's that's not that's not the thinking. I, I can say that without talking to them about it, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I'm going to go on the assumption that, yeah, there's no one in the building of any consequence to say, boy, you know, I think it's time for Jordan Love to uh, go ahead and take the take the wheel on this machine. So the, the the Packers want Rogers back, and if you're Rogers, okay, yeah, you're you're upset. And I, I I can understand a little bit where you see Tom Brady uh, coming to Tampa Bay, and they go ahead and get Gronkowski, and they go ahead and they get um, Fournette, and it seems like they're doing everything humanly possible. They go ahead and get Antonio Brown. I mean, they're 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 adding on top of adding on top of adding pushing in all of the chips, sort of say, to uh, help Tom Brady win a Super Bowl. And on the other, on my side of the street, my my franchise is drafting a quarterback in the first round. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they're like, okay, Aaron, go get him. So uh, on that point, yeah, I can see where he might be a little bit perturbed. But why didn't this stuff come up when Green Bay was rolling and winning football games and, and playing great football? Nobody said at the end of the season 13 and 3, they're like, well, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, they might be 13 and 3, but, you know, the decision to draft Jordan Love might come back to bite them in the playoffs. You never know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, was there going to be a first round pick? Was there going to be a receiver or somebody in the first round that the, um, that the Packers could have gotten that would have made the difference in the outcome of the game against the, uh, Buccaneers on Sunday? Could they have drafted and running back that wasn't going to fumble in the second half? Would they have been able to uh, draft a lineman that could have uh, took some of the pressure off of uh, Rodgers and the times when he needed to get back to pass instead of being sacked a couple of times after interceptions? I mean, was there going to be another receiver there that could have converted on those goal line, um, on those, uh, you know, uh, red zone opportunities? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Rogers, 4,300 yards, 48 touchdowns, five interceptions. I mean, how, how much more of drafting a wide receiver in the first round was going to add on to that? So with um receiver drafted number one, that all of a sudden Rogers was going to throw for 4,800 yards, 55 touchdowns, and just three interceptions. And instead of going 13-3, and three, the Packers were going to go 15-1 and one or 14-2 and two and still have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. I... I I, I I don't know. I don't know where we're coming from here. I have no idea. But Aaron Rodgers seems to be to be in the perfect situation. Now look, people are saying that what Rodgers really wants is a new contract. 
that he doesn't want to be traded. He ain't retiring. He wants more money. This season he made $33.5 million, and he's getting into the latter part of his uh, contract, which is going to pay him far less in comparison to the other quarterbacks. And look, hey, when he signed that contract, he was the highest paid player in the game. So the Packers were not, were not being cheap by giving him a contract. They gave him a very healthy contract, a very impressive contract at the time that he signed it. But when you have, you know, Patrick Mahomes making $45 million, you're speaking about the uh, quarterbacks as far as average new money value. Rodgers ranks fifth because, yeah, he made $33.5 million this year. But next year, he's going to make 22.35. And then in 2022, he's going to be making 25.5. And, and then 25.5 and in 2023. And I think that, you know, the Packers can go ahead and void the contract after 2021. So he's only guaranteed for one more season in terms of the money that he's going to be getting. But as I mentioned before, he currently ranks fifth in new average uh, money value because. Patrick Mahomes is making 45 mil. Deshaun Watson is making 39 mil. Russell Wilson is making 35 mil. Ben Roethlisberger. Ben Roethlisberger. That would really, that would be the one that would tighten my jaws. Hey, look, I can understand you paying Deshaun and Russell and, and Mahomes. I can understand you, those guys getting paid that much. But Ben Roethlisberger? <laughs> really? Damn. In fact, Rodgers earns the same amount of money as LA Rams quarterback Jared Goff. That might be a situation where I'm like, what in the fuck? But, 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 Rodgers signed that extension at the time was a very, very healthy deal. Rodgers wasn't walking away from the, uh, or his agent, they weren't walking away from the negotiating table saying, well, damn, you know, if you're going to fuck us, could you at least fix us a breakfast in the morning and leave a note? Jeez. There was no hometown discount when Rodgers signed that contract. It's just a way of doing business. I mean, what he should have done was just sign a two-year deal, sign up deal like Leslie O'Neill for the San Diego Chargers used to do every year. Sign two years and just bank on the fact that he would be better each and every year and he would just keep cashing in and keep up with the uh, flow of the money, keep up with the um, inflation of contracts. So if you're the Packers, what do you do? You have them on contract for a couple of more years, so what do you say? Screw you, just go ahead, you know, play your contract and... You signed it. You owned it. It was a great contract at the time. And again, Patrick Mahomes has been unbelievable. Deshaun Watson's 29 years old. They're banking on the future. Russell Wilson, he signed a couple of years after you did or a year or two after you did. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. And in the language of that contract, maybe it was a situation where Rodgers wanted all his money early. So he would have some um, advantages. So we could have some uh power and control over what he could do. So it's like, yeah, I want all of my money. I want most of my money or the largest part of the contract I want now. And then when I'm 39, 40 years old or whenever this contract ends, I can uh, be in a little bit better position to where if it's time for me and the franchise to part ways, then it could be easier for us to do that. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't part of the negotiations, but Rogers is getting paid and He's getting that discount. He's getting the Rogers uh, rate from Jake from State Farm. So this guy, I mean, come on, man. You can't have it all. Unbelievable. So look, the uh, cap hit for Rogers. He has a, uh, the cap number ex- in excess is $37 million, 
for 2021, but the new contract could easily reduce it. Maybe they reconstruct it. Maybe they, you know, add on a little couple of, a little bit more guarantee or bonus or whatever. You know, if you throw for four, if you throw for five yards this season, we'll give you an extra mil. I don't, I don't know how these things go, but uh, look, because of the pandemic, and also remember, Rogers signed this contract when there was no inkling, no nothing of a pandemic. Most people in this country probably couldn't even spell pandemic at this time. You know, we're talking about COVID-19. They might've been talking about, you know, new James Bond movie or something like that, but, uh, or Mission Impossible. But uh, yeah, because of the pandemic and lost revenue this season, the salary cap is only going to be somewhere around 180 million. So I don't know if Rogers wants a new deal. He wants the Packers to make a more concerted effort to give him teammates or to give him players or to give him talent surrounding him or maybe do something about the secondary. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what he wants and when he starts doing this beautiful mystery and I don't know where we're going to be and I'm living for the moment. All of those things nice and correct, but really hasn't given any sign in terms of I want to go here, I want to go there, I want to do this, I want to do that, so... We don't know. We don't know. I mean, does he want the... I mean, we, we see the free agents on the market in terms of, you know, wide receivers. Get himself a number two receiver to complement uh, Devontae Adams. So you maybe get a Will Fuller, the fourth, a Juju Smith-Schuster, a Corey Davis. Get an upgrade at cornerback. I mean, are you going to be able... Are the Packers going to uh, make the move to try to spend the money to get themselves... A Corey Davis or a Juju Smith-Schuster or a Will Fuller? Or are they just going to go ahead and draft another backup quarterback? We don't know. We don't know. But the likelihood of Rodgers being traded or asking for a trade, zero. Where is he going to go? What situations can he go to that's better than the one that he has right now in uh, Green Bay? People talk, well, San Francisco, San Francisco, San Francisco. You're going to try to tell me the skilled players for San Francisco are better than the ones in Green Bay? I don't think so. Yeah, you might have uh, Kyle Shanahan as your offensive play caller, which could be heaven on earth, but it seems to me Matt LaFleur ain't too bad either. I mean, the opportunity to play with uh, Sean Payton, I mean, that, that could be uh, intriguing. Maybe go to Indianapolis. They have a lot of uh, cap space and play with um, and be um, you know, the quarterback for that team under Frank Wright. Okay, maybe, possibly. But take a look at the skill players on that team. There's no one, there's no number one receiver. Michael Thomas isn't better than Devontae Adams. TJ Yeldon is not better than um, Devontae Adams. You take a look at the wide receiving core. That's not an upgrade. You take a look at that team in general. That's not an upgrade. I don't think. And maybe Rodgers is like, well, you know what? I'm so fucking great that, you know what? You put me on a New Orleans or a San Francisco and Indianapolis and I can elevate. I can do what Brady did this season with him going to Tampa Bay and elevating some of that talent. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I know one thing is that uh, here's, a, here's a beautiful mystery. What the hell is Aaron Rodgers talking about? I've got a mystery for you, Mr. Jefferson. What time is it? Oh, and here's a clue. You're wearing a watch. And old Jefferson's, for those my age, you should know what I'm talking about with that joke. No, but seriously, man, I, I just think I just think it's a situation where when we're speaking about the 2021 season, that Aaron Rodgers will be back at the quarterback with the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Bonjour. Bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Chicas. Senor. Senorita. Mi amo and Wendell Wallace. Que pasa? Namaste. Shalom. What's happening? What's going on? Oh, mm, sorry. Kind of dozed off for a second there. You're recording and you're dozing off? Come on, man. You do kindergarten today. I didn't do kindergarten. I did first grade, but they acted like kindergartners, but I survived. Hey, um, I'm watching this. I'm getting ready to watch a little Duke basketball, and it brought me back to, uh, <laughs> brought me back to, uh, everybody getting on Krzyzewski, Coach K, because, I don't know, they claimed that he was being a bully after the loss to Louisville, and I guess a student uh, reporter asked him exactly, what do you do now, or what do you go from here right after the game, and Krzyzewski was like, come on, man, really, you're going to ask me that question? And he was like, well, you know, let me ask you a question, what's your major? What's your major? Like, let's say you, what's your hardest class? Economics, okay, let's say, for instance, you took an economics class, or you took an economics test, and that was the hardest test that you ever took, and then someone ask you right after the test was over, what are you going to do next? You understand what I'm saying? So it's like, basically, it's like a little too early. Basically, that's what he said. I mean, he wasn't like yelling or screaming or he didn't have a mean look on his face or anything like that. Was it Was it condescending? Eh, maybe a little bit. Was it bullying? I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, if you want to go there, I guess, but... I don't know. I I didn't find it uh, offensive or like, oh my goodness, what an asshole or anything like that. I mean, you know, it was, uh, could he have handled it better? Maybe. But he had to go out and apologize. Apologize for what? Come on, man. I mean, you know, the kid asked a question and again, Krzyzewski didn't jump down his throat. He didn't call him stupid. He didn't do anything like that. He didn't go Bobby Knight on his ass. I mean, come on, man. You know, I mean, welcome to the real world. The kid isn't 13. He's not 16. I mean, I don't know what year he is in college, but I mean, if he's a senior or something like that, we're speaking about a 21, 22 year old. And when you're 21 and 22, you ain't a kid. All right. So, I mean, let, let's stop with the, oh, well, you know, poor him. And you're right. He's not making any money doing this or with this, that, and the other. So, but, but he is getting an opportunity to learn his craft and he is getting an opportunity to possibly, I don't know, maybe coach K can uh, write him a letter or recommendation or something like that. So, I mean, there, there's some advantages for doing what he's doing. So I, I don't want to hear the woe is me, this, that, and the other, the kid, the kid's 18, you know, sticks and stones may break your bones, son, you know, grow a pair, put on your big boy pants and, and deal with it. Welcome to life. Not everything is going to be fair. Not everything, not everybody's going to treat you with, you know, with, with, uh, with kid gloves. Welcome to the real world. Believe me, it gets a lot worse the older you get. So, you know, you might as well get used. To, if you can't handle that, then I suggest, I don't know what you should do, but the workplace ain't going to be the right place for you. If all of a sudden what Coach Krzyzewski did in terms of answering your question somehow is considered to be so off-putting and so off-base and so out of line and so mean and so rude, this, that, and the other. And believe me, have you ever worked for a boss? Have you ever worked for a supervisor? Yeah, they ain't the most, they ain't the most nice motherfuckers out there either. You ever work for a program director? You ever work for, uh, an office manager? Yeah. Um, hate to tell you this, but, uh, Coach Krzyzewski could have handled that a much meaner way. And, uh, but he chose not to. So I, I don't, I don't know, man. Just, you know, 
just just give just give the man a break. All right. Like I said, he could have handled it a lot worse. And when you're as success, successful as Mike Krzyzewski, hey, you know what? We praise Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs was a notorious asshole. So, I mean, you know, to each his own. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. ESC Championship game. Really not too much to talk about during this situation. The defending champions of Kansas City are back in the Super Bowl. They beat the Bills, the Buffalo Bills, 38-24. Patrick Mahomes went 29-38 for 325, three touchdowns. His passer rating was 127.6. He averaged 8.5 yards per attempt. Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, Mr. Outside and Mr. Inside, combined for 22 catches for 290 yards and two touchdowns. The Kansas City defense sacked Allen four times, limited Buffalo to 5-14 to, uh, on third down attempts. Man, it was uh, it wasn't dominating. And again, who who are we gonna blame? Who on Buffalo right now are we gonna blame? I mean, we gotta take a shot at somebody, right? So who you aiming your who you aiming the gun at? Josh Allen, he's a fraud. He's a joke. He's overrated. He should have been. You know, uh, we're gonna talk about Sean McDermott, uh, overrated, no good. Buffalo defense regressed. Leslie Frazier, overrated as a defensive coordinator. This is the reason why Brian Dable didn't get a job because offensively, going up against Kansas City, he couldn't do anything. I, I know somehow, some way, we gotta put the blame on this loss on somebody, the Buffalo, rather than saying Buffalo played pretty decently. Kansas City's just in another league. One player has a really good quarterback. The other quarter, the other team has Patrick Mahomes. Bingo. The other team has a really good number one right receiver in Stefan Diggs. The other team has uh, Tyreek Hill. Oh, and did I mention also uh, the best tight end in the game right now? Sorry, George uh, George Little and and, uh, and others. It's the way it is, man. Kansas City better team playing at home. Um. Really, not too much to say. It was interesting because, you know, it was like, man, I, I made the point the way Buffalo was playing. Man, you know, if everybody was going to beat Kansas City, I think it could be Buffalo, the way these guys are putting points on the board and the way that Josh Allen is playing. And, yeah, the defense isn't fantastic, but the way the offense is moving and grooving and improving and super smoothing that, you know, they don't have to be shutting them down. You can let Mahomes score 24, 31, 35 the way the offense on Buffalo was playing. I really think they have a chance. And, hey, the opening part of the game gave us the possibility that, you know what, we might have a competitive game with the Bills having an opportunity to win. They, they took the opening drive, went for it on fourth down and one. Nice little pass to the tight end, to the 48. Okay, the play stall. They kicked the 51-yard field goal to make a 3 nothing. That's it. That's it. Mina Kimes. I can't believe this. I mean, Sean McDermott is great, but... How in the world are you kicking the field goal? You gotta score for, you gotta score touchdowns. Mina, Mina. <laughs> Mina, come on now. Come on, come on, come on. You're, you're, you're really gonna go there? Like, the, the, like the field goal was the, uh, was the reason why they lost, or that was, that was the turning point of the game? Again, you're, you're going on the assumption that they're gonna make it on fourth down, and then they're gonna continue all the way to the end zone? I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta score some points. The game just started. Okay, I mean, if you're down and something like that against Kansas City in the third or the fourth, okay, I get it, I understand. Or that mentality, if you're, if you've got third and manageable, 
third and four, third and five from the 36 or the 31 or something like that. Yeah, I can understand being ultra aggressive and I can understand, you know, a situation where, look, we just can't continue to kick field goals. But the game just started. There was no score. I mean, get, get the lead. I don't know. I don't know. And then moving, how much really did that mean? Because Buffalo did score a touchdown to make it 9 nothing With 6-19 left to go in the first, Kansas City fumbled a punt. Buffalo recovered inside the uh, KC2 yard line and then scored on the next play. Yeah, the extra point was missed. But so now we're taking a look at it's 9 nothing. So is that, I don't know, maybe the extra point miss was the uh, big momentum change. I don't know. But it seemed like after that, seemed like after Kansas City got down 9 nothing, they were like, all right. All right, enough bullshitting. Let's get things moving. Let's things, get things grooving and uh, get this done. So after scoring to make it 9-7, to seven, Kansas City then scored on six of their next seven offensive possessions. <laughs> ah, the only quote-unquote drive that didn't result in points was when Mahomes took a D at the uh, end of the first half. I was writing this down at the uh, when when Kansas City was up at one point fourteen to nine. It was kind of like, uh oh, here comes the snowball that no one's going to be able to stop as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Kansas City had eleven first downs. Buffalo had two. About four minutes left to go in the second quarter. Kansas City had outgained Buffalo one sixty five to eighteen during that second quarter. Yep. <laughs> Yep, soon as they got rolling, death by a thousand cuts. And, uh, you know, it was, a, you know, the body, go for the body, hit the body, and the, and the uh, jaw will be there. And that's what uh, Kansas City did. You hit him in the, they Rocky Marciano, the guy. You hit him in the arm, you hit him in the shoulder, you hit him in the chest, you hit him in the thighs, you hit him in the abdomen, you hit him in the... You know, you, you hit them all up. You, 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 you bruise them bloody all up the uh, arms and the uh, torso and all them other places. And when he's huffing and puffing, he's got nothing left. And he can't raise his hands to, uh, he can't raise his arms to defend that chin. That's when you go for the knockout punch. And that's exactly on six of those seven drives in the first half where the uh, football team from Kansas City being down 9 nothing all of a sudden was ahead 21-12 to at the halftime. That's exactly what they did. Those short passes to Kelsey, those short passes to, um, um, I would say short, short to medium passes to Kelsey and Hill, Williams, the running back, those guys started getting, you know, good yardage. They weren't getting 20, 25, 15, 12, 18 yards per play, but it was just a steady second and four, second and three, second and six, second and five. I mean, it was just in that area time after time after time. And it was an out to Kelsey. It was a short pass to Watkins. I mean, not Watkins didn't play, but I mean, it was just a, it was just a methodical, <clears throat> a methodical approach down the field. Okay, three yards on the run to make a second and seven. Pass to a Kelsey for six yards, third and one, manageable. Keep the sticks moving. <clears throat> keep the ball going. It was just, um, how do you want, how do you want your ass to be kicked? Basically. I mean, that's just the way it was. It was a good team going up against a great team. The good team played well, and the great team played the way they're supposed to play. And when that happens, 
unless the Bills were going to play out of their fucking minds, then that wasn't going to happen. And there's not too many times in a year where a team in the NFL is going to play out of their fucking minds. I mean, you, you can't count on that every single time, which makes the offense for Kansas City and that team even more remarkable. The fact that what they did against Buffalo wasn't something where it was like out of worldly or something that was uh, coming out of left field. I mean, the type of devastation that those guys put down, rain down on the Bills was something that's kind of commonplace. So, yeah. Allen, let me see. Didn't play? Trying to think. A couple of passes could have, should have been intercepted. But for the most part, despite looking shaky at times, he finished 28 of 48 for 289 yards and two touchdowns. He also ran for 88 yards. Buffalo turned the ball over once. They had 24 first downs. It was just, I mean, I don't know whatever other way to put this, except that they were going against another team that was much better than those guys. So now you take a look at Mahomes. He's 44-9 in his career at the starting quarterback for Kansas City. Goodness gracious. He's already been named. This, I got this from Nick Wright. This is a pretty good thing. He's already been named both the uh, MVP of the NFL and the Super Bowl. Um, he's never played in a road playoff game or been anything but a one or two seed. He's never lost a game by more than eight points. He's lost a playoff. He's never lost a playoff game in regulation. And he's gone to uh, he, he's never uh, he's gone home before. He's never gone home before championship weekend. Made two Super Bowls. Won a Super Bowl MVP. All of this before he turns twenty six. And I mentioned before. Too early to say that he's the greatest of all time, especially with Tom Brady when you put in 20-plus years. I'm not going to disrespect the man like that. But in terms of a guy who has made an impact on the, in the league from the quarterback position, can you name anybody? The only person I came up with that was close was Dan Marino when he uh, played his first couple of years for Miami, and he set the world on fire. Other than that, I can't name you a player I can't name you anybody else out there who basically from the start of his second year in the league is first as a starter to what he's doing now is third in his third year as a starter. I can't think of anybody in the history of the game. Joe Montana, John Elway, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Johnny Unitas. I don't know who the fuck you want to go all the way back to. Sammy frickin' Ball. It's nobody who has played in the history of the NFL who has had this type of impact so soon on the game than Patrick Mahomes. The ability and the responsibility that Andy Reid puts on this guy, it's like something to where you would put on an all-pro or a pro bowl, perennial pro bowl player who's been in the league nine or ten years. The responsibility that this guy has. This guy's only played 53 regular season games. And he does all this. So in conclusion... Let me tell you something about Patrick Mahomes. I used to have this saying for Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, where you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off an of old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. I said that for years. Well, let me tell you something, man. That moniker has now been passed. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off an of old Lone Ranger. Oh, man. And you don't mess around with Patrick Mahomes. Oh.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going. Excuse me. A lot of things going on today in the world of sports. A lot of things going on today, just in life in general. A lot of things that I want to talk about, considering what's happening in the world in the world of sports. Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford. The Detroit Lions. They're parting ways. They're getting a divorce. They're mutual deciding to say, see you later, alligator in a wild crocodile. Stafford is going to be available via a trade. The Lions are expected to command at least one first-round pick in exchange for Stafford. Mm, you know what? I think it's pretty decent just in terms of, you know, the fact that there's a plenty of teams out there that uh, could use him as a quarterback. He has two years left on this contract, which is going to pay him $20 million in 2021 and $23 million in 2022. And when the Lions trade him, they're going to lose around $19 million in, in dead money. So, look, I think Matthew Stafford is still a guy that cannot perform. Look, the, the Lions finished 5-11, and the season was kind of highlighted by Matt Patricia finally being let go in Week 12. But, you know, Stafford threw for 4,000 yards, 26 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions, and not too many weapons around him. But after three losing seasons... With a new regime on the way, Stafford was like, you know what, man, I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, maybe it's time for me to go somewhere else. But you know what? If I'm Matthew Stafford, I've got one more run in me as a viable starting quarterback in terms of leading a team to a championship. I understand that he didn't get it done in Detroit. He's going to go down as one of the three greatest Lions, uh, probably since, uh, you get past the Bobby Lane era of, uh, Lions football and Charlie Sanders and Alice Karras, whatever that guy's name is. In terms of the last, what, 20, 25 years, Detroit Lions, he's right up there with uh, Megatron, Calvin Johnson, and, of course, the greatest of them all, Barry Sanders. I mean, hell, he's even more valuable, I think, to the Lions organization than Billy Sims was. So, yeah, it's kind of like an interesting kind of bleak time, but if you really think about it, and if you take a look at those three guys that I just mentioned, or let's just take Billy Sims out of the equation, but if you if you think about Calvin Johnson, you think about Barry Sanders, and you think about Matthew Stafford, and you're thinking about those guys just in terms of it went from, it went from Sanders to Megatron and, and Stafford together, the fact that those guys couldn't get any type of real success at all is not indicative of their skills or as how they were as players. That's an indictment on how pathetic and how lousy the Detroit Lions organization is. The fact that you had one of the greatest running backs who ever played the game, one of the greatest, greatest wide receivers of his generation, and a quarterback taking number one who had the ability, I think, to be a quarterback on a team that could compete 
for championships. The fact that you did absolutely nothing with those guys, you surrounded them with absolutely nothing, that you gave them a coaching staff that was subpar most of the time, with the exception of Jim Caldwell off the top of my head, just shows you what kind of organization the Detroit Lions have and one of the reasons why they're not winning anything, one of the reasons why they never won anything, and one of the reasons why after years and years of being a true soldier, loyal soldier to the program, to the organization that Matthew Stafford said, yeah, you know what, it's time for me to win, time for me to go ahead and do something else. As I mentioned before with Deshaun, man, I mean, Stafford's going to go down in the, in, the, in the department of guys like Archie Manning where it was like good quarterbacks played on bad organizations. What could have been if they played on good organizations? How much better could they have come uh, become? So maybe it's a situation where Matthew Stafford sees that and he's like, I want to give it one more shot. I want to go ahead and uh, try my luck somewhere else. You take a look at a team like Washington. You take a look at a team like New Orleans. You take a look at a team like Pittsburgh. You take a look at a team like Indianapolis. You take a look at those type of squads. I mean, what can Matthew Stafford do in terms of being the starting quarterback for those teams. If you take a look at the defense that the uh, Washington football team is building in my nation's capital, if you take a look at the defense that the uh, New Orleans Saints have and the Alvin Kamara and maybe the return of Michael Thomas into a decent receiver, and of course, you always have Sean Payton. What could be of that organization with Matthew Stafford at their starting quarterback. You take a look at the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, and you take a look at their weapons, and you take a look at that organization, and you take a look at their philosophy, the coaching, and everything like that. You put Matthew Stafford in there, Pittsburgh would still remain a team that's viable in terms of being um, teams that could uh, win championships. So you take a look at all that. If you're Matthew Stafford, and I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but if I'm him, I'm like, hey, this is my wish list. Uh, make sure you don't trade me to the flipping New York Jets or some bullshit like that. Make sure you send me to a, to a Gord organization. I mean, what do you think Denver would give to get themselves uh, someone like a Matthew Stafford for John Elway's sake? So all of these things come into play. But <laughs> did you see this Dan Campbell uh, the new head coach of the Lions, new general manager, Brad Holmes. Both of these guys were aware of Stafford's intention prior to accepting the offers, the job offers from Detroit, that it was more than likely that Matthew Stafford was going to be on his way out. But I'm quite sure when Dan Campbell gave an introductory press conference that, um, yeah, Matthew Stafford, his decision was a set in stone after hearing this. I wanted this job bad because I felt like I knew this community. I played here. All right. Here's what I know. Just as an overall philosophy, you're going to say, well, what's this team going to be? What's it not going to be? Here's what I know. All right. I know that Detroit's made up of great people, some really good people. All right. This community is strong. Um, this place has been kicked. It's been battered. It's been bruised. And I can sit up here and give you coach speak all day long. I can give you, uh, you know, hey, we're going to win this many games. I can't. That none of that matters, and you guys don't want to hear it anyway. You've had enough of that shit, so excuse my language. All right, here's what I do know, is that this team is going to take on the identity of this city, all right? And this city's been been down, and it found a way to get up, all right? It's found a way to uh, overcome adversity, all right? And so this team's going to be built on, uh, we're going to kick you in the teeth, all right, and when you punch us back, we're going to smile at you. And when you knock us down, 
we're going to get up. And on the way up, we're going to bite a kneecap off, all right? And we're going to stand up. And then it's going to take two more shots to knock us down, all right? And on the way up, we're going to take your other kneecap, and we're going to get up. And then it's going to take three shots to get us down. And when we do, we're going to take another hunk out of you. Before, before long, we're going to be the last one standing. Yeah. As I mentioned before, Matthew Stafford was like, okay, yeah, time for me to go. From the audio, let me see here. I wanted this job badly because he knows this, because he knows this community and he played there. All right. Detroit is made of really great people and the community is strong. That's true. That's true. Detroit does have some strong people, does have some great people. They've been kicked, battered, and bruised. And I can sit up here and give you coach speak all day long. You've had enough of that shit. But of course, the words that will always be remembered, no matter what this guy does, this guy can be Bill Belichick 2.0. And the words will always be remembered there forever. Here's what I do know. This team is going to take on the identity of this city. And this city has been down and found its way to get back up. It's found a way to overcome adversity, right? So this team is going to be built on, we're going to kick you in the teeth, right? And when you punch us back, we're going to smile at you. And when you knock us down, we're going to get up. And on the way up, we're going to bite off. We're going to bite the kneecap off. Okay. Okay, okay. Yeah, like I said, hard to believe that Stafford, in the waning years of his impact of being a top 15 quarterback, wouldn't want to be part of that. <laughs> I mean, that's bullshit that even high schoolers would take a look at and be like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? So, I don't know, man. As I hear James Brown playing in the background, turn my fucking phone off, will you? But, uh, yeah, I can't believe what Stafford is not wanting to uh, finish out his career there. But, uh, look. As I mentioned before, teams that can use Stafford, you don't think the Chicago Bears are in desperate need of a quarterback? You don't think Indianapolis could use a quarterback, San Francisco, New Orleans, Pittsburgh? I mean, these are teams that can use quarterback. But here's the one thing. If I'm taking a look, and you know, Washington, New England, Denver, the difference between going after a Deshaun Watson or a Matthew Stafford, Watson can go to like a rebuilding team. Say, for instance, like the Jets. And he could be the cornerstone of a rebuild with him being the centerpiece. If I'm a, and I think Deshaun Watson, of course, is a better quarterback, but just in terms of, you know, I'm trying to win, I want to win, I want to win a Super Bowl, getting Deshaun Watson for some of these teams, the price might be a little bit too risky. The price might be a little bit too steep, especially if you're speaking about a 25-year-old football player in his prime, one of the best players, the best quarterbacks in the game. You're going to give up multiple first-round draft picks. You're going to be basically Ricky Williamson your, your, your draft for the next couple of years to get this guy. If you're a bad organization, if you're the Lions, for instance, are you going to subject your fan base to another wasted uh, opportunity to have a great Hall of Fame type of quarterback and wasted away because of your ineptitude as an organization? If you're another bad organization, are you going to do that? I can see now Jacksonville has the number one pick. They're probably going to go with Trevor Lawrence. But if I'm speaking about a young squad that's right now building and growing and maturing, yeah. I think that if you're looking to build around a guy like um, Deshaun Watson and you have the infrastructure and you have the philosophy and you have the people in place that in a couple of years you're going to be at that level to where you're going to be able to compete for championships in three or four years. Yeah, I think that um, Deshaun Watson's going to be your guy. He's got eight to 12 years of prime time, elite top five quarterback play left in his career, of course, barring any type of major injury. 
And for Matthew Stafford, he's got, what, two or three years left as a quarterback that can make the difference between winning a Super Bowl and barely making the playoffs. So, you know, the difference between having the impact of a Tom Brady with the Buccaneers and Kirk Cousins with the Minnesota Vikings is, is right there between Deshaun Watson and um, Matthew Stafford. So if I'm someone like the Jets, for instance, I'm in need of a quarterback, especially if you're not going to deal any, deal with Sam Darnold. And maybe you're not in love with Justin Fields. Maybe you're not in love with Zach Wilson. Maybe, Wilson. maybe you're not willing to take the time to try to groom and mature someone like a Trey Lance. Maybe it, you don't see the reason to trade out of that number two pick and maybe get them get themselves a uh, Mac Jones, something like that in this uh, later on in the draft. If I'm the um if I'm the Jets, I don't go after Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford is going to do nothing for me. If I'm a football team that's a couple of players away, I don't go ahead and get myself Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford does nothing for me. But I will go out and I will mortgage the form to get myself a Deshaun Watson. Because if I'm a GM and I'm very confident in my skills and I've got the most important piece of my franchise, which is that quarterback, an elite quarterback that I can build around, I have a big enough ego, I have enough confidence in my skills that I can go ahead and I can get that done. I can go ahead and build that team. I can go ahead within a couple of years and make those moves. Now, of course, to get Deshaun Watson is going to... Uh, mean that I'm going to be giving up a lot of draft picks. I'm going to be giving up a lot of equity. I'm going to be doing that. But Deshaun Watson is a great starting point. And Deshaun Watson is someone that I can build this team around. Matthew Stafford is someone that I can't. So, again, a team like, for instance, Tampa Bay, Matthew Stafford. Someone like a Minnesota, I'm getting uh, Deshaun Watson because... That's just the way it is. Deshaun Watson can basically go to any team he wants to, of course, outside of a, of a handful. But when you take a look at you know the most most attractive quarterbacks that could be available, and at the top of the list you're listing Deshaun Watson and you're listing Matthew Stafford, you have to be careful in terms of who you're going to go after. And if that means that you know what. Matthew Stafford might go uh, somewhere else, or Deshaun Watson might go somewhere else, may have to go in another direction with this, then that's what you do. That's exactly what you do. One of those worlds in sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Okay, I'm going to end with this. want to go ahead and give a special dedication, a special shout-out to Dustin Poirier, a legit, lightweight championship contender. Um, His, mentioned before at the beginning of the uh, podcast, long, long, long time ago, him beating Conor McGregor. And many people are sitting there talking about, man, this is unbelievable. I can't believe it. But really, when you kind of do a little research and you kind of think a little bit deeper, is this really that much of an upset? I know that McGregor was a 300 minus 300 or some nonsense like that. But really, when you take a look at it, after everything is all said and done, was this really an upset? Now, you can point back to Poirier losing to McGregor at UFC 157. Man, that was... <clears throat> that was seven years ago. You realize that Poirier has gone 11 and 2 since that loss to McGregor, and the only two losses were to uh, Khabib Namagamedov, the, I don't know, man. I mean, next to John Jones, maybe the uh, greatest uh, MMA fighter of his generation. Anderson Silva is not in that generation, and is not in that class. And also uh, Michael Johnson. So he's lost to uh, Khabib. You lose to Michael Johnson. Okay, everybody is in MMA is going to. Uh, 
lose that type of fight to that type of uh, fighter. But you take a look at the 11 fighters that he's beaten. When you're speaking about Dan Hooker, that war that he put on there. You're speaking about Justin Gacy. You're speaking about Eddie Alvarez. You're speaking about Max Holloway. That's the fight that got everybody's attention. When Holloway was moving up the lightweight after dominating featherweight, and he was going to be, uh, you know, working his way to uh, immortality as one of the greatest MMA fighters in his generation and everything. And those two, Holloway and Gate and um, and Poirier, put on a masterful performance. That was a war. That was a war. And Poirier won fair and square. He beat Anthony Pettis. Okay, maybe not the WEC Anthony Pettis that gained fame with his uh, win over Benson Henderson back in the day, but still a quality win. And now he's beating Conor McGregor. And McGregor hit him. McGregor rocked him. Many people said McGregor won the first round, was doing quite well in the second until uh, McGregor got caught. But you also have to remember, man, if you take a look at these fights that he's had, if you take a look at the Max Holloway fight, if you take a look at the Dan Hooker fight, man, Poirier can take a punch. Uh, This was something where, you know, you're, you're not going to... The ending coming near is not going to happen off of one punch or one combination. I mean, you're going to have to hit this guy a couple of times. Justin Gaethje couldn't knock him out. As I mentioned before, Max Max Holloway hit him with some great shots and didn't do anything. So, yeah, I mean, McGregor, great striker, precise on his punches. He hit Gaethje. I mean, Jesus, he hit uh, Poirier, and he hit him well. But I think, man, when you went through that war... That uh, Poirier, I hate using the word word war, my fault. When you went through that battle that uh, Poirier went through with Dan Hooker and the shots that he took, yeah, man, you know, Poirier can take a shot. So I want to see him fight. I mean, Michael Chandler. Michael Chandler is surprising everybody. Wow, Michael Chandler, Michael Chandler. I saw Michael Chandler. Michael Chandler's been doing that in Bellator for a while. Now, you might poo-poo that because it's Bellator and not the UFC, but... You know, Michael Chandler has been at that level for a while. Now, he comes in, you know, makes a great first impression, cuts a great promo. Does it automatically mean he should be moved up to the top to uh, fight uh, Poirier? When everything is settled, when the dust is clear, let's see what the enthusiasm is is going to be for Michael Chandler and Dustin Poirier. And also, you have to remember, look, I know that, you know, it's all about money, it's a business, it's an industry, but but look, there's a lot of other fighters out there who I think could uh, draw in a good number of fighting Poirier who deserves more of an opportunity to fight for the lightweight championship than than, uh, Michael Chandler, a guy who just showed up to the UFC on, uh, you know, on, on, on Tuesday. So, Michael Chandler will get a shot. Look, he's 34 years old. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. What's what's the matter with him taking one more fight and then fighting uh, possibly near the um, back half of 2021? What's, what's, what's wrong with that? You know, there's, there's folks out there who have uh, done a lot more in UFC than he has. They're still waiting for a shot at the lightweight crown. And, of course, it all depends on what Nurmagomedov is going to do. I don't think he's coming back. Uh, what's Khabib? If I'm Khabib, it's like, look, man, I'm at the point now where I'm the guy that's going to be driving the pay-per-view buys. I'm the guy that's going to be the star of the show. And I'm the guy, I'm the guy who should be getting the lion's share of the money. If I'm going to have to do most of the work to try to pump up as much money as possible to fight Dustin Poirier, who should be a guy who demands um, superstar status in the uh, sport today, 
but not too many people know who Dustin Poirier is and Dustin Poirier, unfortunately, is just a really good person and a really good fighter. He's not a jackass. He's not an idiot. He doesn't do shtick. He's not playing a role. He's not playing a character. He's not going to insult anybody. He's not going to use racist overtones. He's not going to sell his soul to the devil to act like a jackass so he can get himself in a position to be loved or to be hated or to be crafting his... None of that nonsense. Dustin Poirier is a man's man and he's going to fight. Which is great, but I don't know how much that's going to uh, attract the lemons out there who are attracted who are attracted to the clown show, who's attracted to the sideshow, who's attracted to the uh, WWE factor of um, having a persona, having a character, that type of thing. I mean, Poirier does not have the natural charm or I don't think charm and and the Diaz brothers should ever go hand in hand, but they don't have the he doesn't have the charisma that the Diaz brothers have to uh, to draw people in. So in a situation like this, I'm under Malcolm Edoff, and why do I want to fight uh, McGregor again and go through that bullshit? I, uh, why? And if I'm the public, why would I even want to see that? What what make, After this fight with uh, Poirier, what makes anybody out there think that, oh, yeah, he could take Malcolm Edoff? Oh, yeah, that would, that would be a competitive fight. Any of you clowns see the first fight? What makes you think that the second fight would be any different? McGregor's never been good at uh, stopping the take rounds, take uh, takedowns. McGregor has never been good with wrestlers. And now you've got one of the greatest of all time? Uh, well, how's he going to deal with that? It'll be just a replay of the first fight, except it'll be a mu- uh, much more brutal than it was the first time that they fought. So, look, moving forward, how long does McGregor remain a legitimate championship contender before he becomes a quote-unquote special attraction. Is he one loss away? I don't know, man. He signed He signed like a seven-fight deal. And as of right now, I, I can't see any way, shape, or form how he deviates from fighting in the octagon to go fight, you know, a YouTube star in boxing or get his ass whooped by Manny Pacquiao in the ring. I, I, those... those Flight to fancy should be gone and gone for a while. 32 years old, man. So what do you want to do? If you want to become a champion, look, you got the name, you got the charisma, you've got the clout to where you don't have to fall that far back in the line to get another shot. You know, you're not going to be Tony Ferguson in terms of trying to get a shot at a championship, trying to get a shot at a legitimate uh, uh, belt in a championship. So if you're McGregor, what are you going to do? I mean, if you fight... what? Nick Diaz again, or Nate Diaz? I keep getting Nick and Nate mixed up. Oh, I don't know, Jesus fuck. But if you fight one of the fight one of the Diaz brothers brothers again, what what's that going to do for you? Where are you going to go with that? Paul Felder, you're going to fight him again, or you're going to fight Paul Felder? Okay, but is that really something that's going to get you motivated? Is that something that's going to be like, wow? I mean, can we even? I mean, with McGregor, shit, you could have a sparring session with McGregor, put it on pay-per-view, and he would, he would get over a million buyers right now, but, I mean, are we going to go with that, Paul Felder? Do you, do you throw him back into the deep end? He said that inactivity was one of the keys for him losing. I, I just think, again, I point back to, once you reach that goal, that lifelong goal, and once you hit the jackpot by fighting Mayweather, and getting all that money from those from uh, folks who were stupid enough to buy that pay-per-view and watch it. Four point something million. You get all that money. 
You got proper number 12 going. You've got uh, a wife and child. I don't know if he married his, I don't know if he married the mother of his child, but you know, basically you got a family and everything like that. What 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 is what is getting you up in the morning to try to um replicate the success that you had earlier in your career when you've gotten everything? And you got the young bucks out here who are looking to fucking take your head off. 32 years old, Connor. I mean, pretty soon, man, you're going to you're gonna be old news. And it comes fast. And it comes real fast. There's another Conor McGregor out there, or there's another MMA fighter at 145 or 155 right now who's going to have the same type of impact in terms of uh, people getting to know. He's out there. He's out there somewhere. And he's hungry. And he's starving. No one knows who he is. He's inconsequential he's irrelevant right now and he knows that and that young man is working and working and working and working he's like clubber lang and you're like rocky balboa in rocky three hey man you know i've gotten everything i've got the big house this that and the other you know everything that i dreamed and achieved i've achieved so what's left what the 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 willingness to fight very few athletes man very very few athletes are built like that. How much do you love the sport? How much do you love every aspect of the sport? Not just bumping your, bumping your gums and getting in the octagon and doing your Vince McMahon strut and all that type of stuff. I mean, when no one's looking and when there's no cameras, no fanfare, no yes man, how much do you want to go through that grind and then go through that grind with the possibility of losing? No one's going to be underestimating you, Connor. Everybody's coming to make a name off of you, man. So when whoever you fight, whenever you fight, that person is going to put in the, 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 it's going to give it his all. Not just in terms of when he steps in the octagon with you, not trying to, uh, you know, out promo you, but when he's up there training, when he's up there working hard, when he's up there sparring, the dedication that that person is going to put in to try to beat you. To make a name off of you. Are you ready for that? Do you even remember that? It'll be interesting. Is he going to be like the Diaz brothers? Is he going to be like Kimbo Slice? Is he going to be like CM Punk? In terms of, you know, come watch Conor McGregor fight. Or are you going to be a legit contender for a championship? I don't know what you got, man. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see. All right, I'm out of here. I am done. I am finished. Time for me to watch a little basketball. Don't forget, man, Frontline on PBS comes on 10 o'clock out here. One of the best shows you can ever watch in terms of uh, news, the everyday news, what's going on. It's awesome, man. It's fantastic. One of my favorite shows. Can't wait to uh, get back into uh, binge watching uh, those shows, man. I go back to like the late 90s watching um frontline i mean you, you set me up 13 14 episodes and uh give me a day where i ain't doing anything i'm down i'll go ahead and watch that and i will go ahead and i'll watch that non-stop love myself some frontline on pbs one of the best shows you'll ever see so i'm looking forward to that all right man thanks for listening be safe stay strong stay the way you are love peace unity man we can do it we can get it done And we can do it together. Music.